Uh, good morning, all. Uh, to our meeting, I'm really glad uh, you're here. Uh, before we, we begin formally, I, I would like to uh, welcome a new addition to our committee, but not uh, uh, by any means a new face or somebody we don't know, Dr. Raj Punjabi, who is the former uh, special assistant to the president and senior director for global health security and at the National Security Council, uh, I'm glad has agreed to join our ranks as an ex officio member. This is um, a major acquisition. I can't think of the comparable sports analogy. How about a poobah? Yeah. How about, how about, how about Mezzi going to the Miami uh, soccer team? Yeah, that, that's something like that. Uh, Dr. Uh, Punjabi's excellent reputation obviously precedes him as does his work uh, to implement critical biodefense uh, policies, including the uh, biodefense strategy, which President Biden issued and which we're uh, proud to say was a key recommendation from our uh, commission's foundational report in 2015. In his previous role in the uh, White House, um, Raj was really a strong supporter of the commission and a great advocate for our work, uh, and more generally, a great advocate for advancing uh, and improving the national biodefense. So we couldn't be happier, Raj, to have you join us as an ex-officio member, and we look forward uh, to working with you. Of course, I'd also like to thank our fiscal sponsor, and always important, the Hudson Institute, and our donors um, uh, for their support. And our host today here uh, at the Partnership for Public Service, which I'm proud to say was uh, founded and uh, endowed by dear friends of uh, mine from Connecticut, Sam and Ronnie Heyman. Uh, next year will be this commission's 10th anniversary. Looking back, I must say in part, I'm very proud of all we've tried to do, and in fact, that we have done, and the extent to which we've had some of our suggestions, particularly going back to the uh, report in 2015, uh, adopted by Congress or the executive uh, branch. And the aim, of course, has been um, to better prepare our country to prevent and respond to an attack with bioweapons which I must say I thought was our priority concern when I was asked to be co-chair with Tom Ridge, uh, or an infectious disease pandemic, which turned out to be, in a way, um, uh, well, it turned out to be really an extraordinary national crisis, uh, which we had done some work on, but I didn't think was as urgent as the bioweapons um, threat. There were times... Um, when uh, the recommendations we made were uh, right on target, and uh, I apologize for using the word almost prophetic, not that we are geniuses, but we listened to the experts before we uh, put out our uh, 2015 and following reports, and and they were so uh, stark and urgent about uh, America's lack of preparedness for an infectious disease pandemic, but obviously there's not a lot of satisfaction in looking back at all the recommendations we made and unfortunately noting 
that when COVID-19 struck, we were, in, in most ways, really prepared to respond. Um, once it did strike, our country rushed its way to some really remarkable responses, particularly in the uh, development of medical countermeasures, uh, vaccines. Now, um, really, this commission is intent on whatever we can uh, to prevent uh, the government and our government and the private sector uh, and the public from slipping back into a kind of lethargy between now and what will inevitably be um, the next uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, we're now in the final stages of uh, working on an updated uh, up, a national blueprint for defense, which was the formal name of our 2015 report, which we expect to release next year, probably in the spring. Uh, as we develop this next blueprint, which we're calling Blueprint 2.0, we are re-examining our previous recommendations from 2015, as well, of course, in the, uh, uh, the experiences we had um, with um, COVID-19 and the changes in the bioweapons threat environment. We're going to be focused today on three areas that are quite relevant to um, what, what we want to um, cover in our, our updated report. Uh, the first is uh, the work of the Pentagon Defense Department, which in August issued a bio-defense uh, posture review, which I think was the, um, so far has been the most significant, substantial uh, response and implement, to an implementation of uh, President Biden's national biodefense uh, strategy, which was issued, I guess, the previous year. Um, and we're lucky to have Secretary Rosenblum uh, here. Second, um, uh, we want to focus in on the um, one area, not COVID-19, but uh, of smallpox as a, a kind of a test case or learning um, uh, experience for how we deve uh, develop uh, medical countermeasures uh, for a, a, a outbreak before something uh, actually uh, begins to occur. We have the um, high-level representatives from the three companies that are the major producers of those countermeasures in this area. And then the final is to focus broadly, uh, as we are again, on how can we better organize the whole national biodefense effort throughout the federal government, but really particularly to focus on the Center for, Center for Disease Control, which um, in many ways, unfortunately, didn't come off well in response to COVID-19. Former Director Walensky has implemented some reforms in response to her recognition of that fact, and um, uh, we'd like to uh, consider that with an excellent group of uh, um, witnesses we have who will uh, talk about, including uh, whether it's finally time to uh, authorize CDC in law. So um, we, as we've got great uh, speakers coming before us. I thank them for joining us, and, and of course, we all look forward to hearing their testimony. Um, I, now, um, uh, Tom Ridge, our co-chair, cannot be here in person. Um, we uh, we 
thank him for his continuing work for the commission. And now I'd like to ask this meeting's co-chair, uh, Representative Fred Upton, to make opening remarks. Well, thank you, my friend, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I certainly share your sentiment that it's good to be here again with my fellow commissioners to address the biological threat and, in fact, to listen to the experts to help us help others, particularly on Capitol Hill. You know, our former colleagues on Capitol Hill continue to debate how best to address the biological threat as part of their efforts to reauthorize the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act. As former Representative Brooks will attest in her time on Capitol Hill on the powerful Energy and Commerce Committee, where she was a real leader and author of this legislation, it's absolutely critical to the ability of the Department of HHS to confront biological events like COVID-19. But regardless of your feelings about how the government performed in its response to the pandemic, the fact is that we would have been far worse off without the capabilities that this law provides. Time will tell if Congress will be able to meet the moment and reauthorize this important legislation before the end of the year or early next year. I know that my former colleagues will eventually get it done, the better, and with any luck, we'll see additional authorities addressing problems that arose during the recently ended public health emergency. As Congress considers HHS's role and responsibilities, and as this commission reassesses our national blueprint for biodefense, which as Senator Lieberman said is expected to be released sometime this spring, I am particularly glad that we're going to hear from current and former leaders from the department, including representative from the centers uh, from CDC. I had hoped that uh, Director Mandy Cohen could be here today to discuss her vision for the CDC and how we in the Congress could be supportive of that effort. But unfortunately, she was unable to join us. And while Congress has authorized many of the programs over the years, the CDC has actually never been reauthorized. As the former chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, I remember when my staff brought the need to authorize the CDC to my attention. I realized then, as I realize now, that CDC authorization would take an enormous amount of time and effort. As I look at this Congress, the days are slim. So the COVID-19 pandemic revealed weaknesses and vulnerabilities in many institutions, including the CDC. Holding the CDC accountable for things that Congress never properly authorized them to do in the first place doesn't seem quite fair. Seems like something should change and soon. So originally a CDC responsibility, the strategic national stockpile has in recent years come under the purview of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS. As we also, as was also the case with COVID, the MPOX outbreak last year drew the attention to the stockpile's contents and the decision-making process involved in taking some of its contents. In the case of MPOX, we're talking about stockpiled smallpox vaccine and distributing it throughout the country in order to impede the spread of yet another pandemic. While those vaccines were put to beneficial use, we simply cannot dispute the importance of maintaining an adequate supply of countermeasures for known biological agents such as smallpox that have been weaponized and used to attack this country, its people, and the world. There's also another question as to the stockpile's mission and what role it should play if and when states decide to create and maintain their own stockpiles. 
I appreciate that we have representatives here today for the major smallpox countermeasures manufacturers to speak about their experience in relationships with the federal government. I look here forward to hearing and listening to our distinguished panelists today and engaging in a good discussion, as we always try to do. Back to you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. We're obviously, uh, we have a wonderful commission. It's been great to work with over time. Uh, Donna Shalala is here, Jim Greenwood, Peggy Hamburg, and uh, uh, virtually, but uh, not too far away, had Tom Daschle and uh, Susan Brooks. So uh, we're really honored uh, to have as our first witness, Deborah Rosenblum. Uh, we couldn't have a better start off witness on the whole question of the Pentagon role. Um, Secretary uh, Rosenblum is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological uh, Defense, which is uh, exactly what we'd like to hear from you about and then question you. So welcome. Thanks for your service. It's all yours. Oh, thank you very much, Senator Lieberman, uh, for your kind introduction. Um, it's a real honor for me to have an opportunity to speak before the, the commission today. And I'm very grateful for your uh, many collective years of leadership in advocating for and advancing biodefense reforms in our country. DOD is also indebted to Dr. Asha George for joining us for the per first public discussion of the Biodefense Posture Review, or BPR, in August to represent the Commission's continued focus on biodefense between crises over the last many years. Thank you for inviting me to discuss the Department's inaugural Biodefense Posture Review and a few key recommendations to help us to meet this moment as our nation is poised between the COVID-19 crisis and pandemic response and the changing strategic environment where the risks from our perspective of bio threats continue to grow exponentially. I hope you have already read these words in the BPR because you will hear us repeating these often. The Department of Defense and the nation is at a pivotal moment in biodefense as we face an unprecedented number of complex threats as outlined in the National Defense Strategy along with the National Biodefense Strategy. The Secretary of Defense charged us with ensuring that the department is prepared to operate in a biological threat environment and to support the national biodefense enterprise both at home and abroad. DOD must implement significant reforms as outlined in the BPR to ensure that we have a resilient total force that deters the use of bioweapons, rapidly responds to natural outbreaks, and maximizes biosafety and biosecurity for laboratories globally. The National Security Strategy and the National Defense Strategy require this of us. The National Defense Strategy speaks to the growing threat of chemical and biologic threats extensively within the context of the strategic competition we now face with near-peer competitors, but not exclusively the PRC and Russia, as we remain concerned 
about how emerging biotechnologies could be incorporated into a biological warfare program or used by any actor for purposes inconsistent with obligations under the Biologic Weapons Convention. The National Defense Strategy also highlights significant transboundary challenges associated with pandemics and naturally occurring disease, which impact the readiness and resilience of our forces. Biodefense is no longer something only specialized units do. Integrated deterrence requires a credible combat joint force. To be combat credible, the entire joint force must be capable of fighting through bio threats and must be resilient in the face of these threats. Yeah. While we are here to discuss the BPR, I would be remiss if I did not also take a moment to acknowledge the corresponding and complementary work of the National Security Council. And uh, Senator Lieberman, you mentioned that this was led ably under the leadership of Dr. Raj Punjabi and now Dr. Paul Friedrichs um, in updating the National Biodefense Strategy and its implementation plan and bringing the interagency together towards critical improvements in biodefense preparedness, both nationally and globally. The BPR was built on the foundation laid out in the National Defense Strategy, the National Biodefense Strategy, as well as a large number of lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic response. And we took it in order to better posture the department to counter threats through the 2035 timeframe. The BPR leverages these strategic guidance documents and lessons learned to implement reforms that the Department of Defense must undertake in order to fight and win in the face of any future biothreat, be it a deliberate attack, an accidental release, or a naturally occurring event. I am very familiar and grateful for the Commission's work and your important advocacy that it could be possible to end the threat of future pandemics within the decade through implementations of recommendations made in the National Blueprint and the Apollo Program for Biodefense, assuming the necessary resources and the best ideas and innovation in our country. The BPR takes a similar but more focused approach as we look to potential bio threats through 2035. The National Defense Strategy clearly acknowledges that we will likely face these threats and suggests that key reforms are needed to better protect our forces. To that end, the BPR was a whole of Department of Defense effort involving op offices within the Secretary of Defense, defense agencies, our combatant commands, as well as our military services that all play distinct roles and have distinct authorities to deter bio threats, as well as to protect the force and respond to bio incidents. Across these many roles and authorities, the BPR outlined reform initiatives along four clear lines of effort. One, 
enhancing early warning and understanding to counter bio threats. Two, improve the preparedness for resilient total force. Three, speed response to mitigate the impact on DOD missions and the total force. And four, improve strategic coordination and collaboration across the interagency to enhance biodefense. I'll also note that during the BPR, we prioritized our analyses and recommendations to align with the Department of Defense's programming and budget cycle. The DOD's 2024 President Budgets Request that's currently up with Capitol Hill includes key investments to support the implementation of several BPR recommendations. The budget requested an additional $812 million across the fit-up for DOD-wide efforts to enhance the total forces capabilities, capacity, and preparedness to rapidly detect, characterize, and mitigate the effect of bio threats, whether they be naturally occurring by an accident or man-made. The 24 budget request also builds on the research, development, and acquisition advances enabled by the FY23 Enhanced Biodefense and Pandemic Preparedness Investments, many of which are aligned to your own Apollo program recommendations to posture the department to support timely bioincident prevention, detection, assessment, response, and recovery consistent with our national defense strategy and national biodefense strategy. These investments allow us to pursue mission-sweeping reforms to deliver early bio-threat warning, which is required for the national defense strategy, and to posture our forces to decisively respond to any bio-threat that might inhibit our ability to move forward under any circumstances. Of the many reforms and recommendations coming from the BioPosture Review, I want to highlight today three that I find particularly relevant to the theme of today's session, as well as the critical work of the Commission since your original national blueprint for the Biodefense Report highlighting key challenges of biodefense leadership and opportunities to improve U.S. biodefense. First amongst these reforms I'll discuss is the establishment of the, the need to establish and dis sustain the Biodefense Council within the Department of Defense. This is a critical new body to improve DOD coordination and to speed our response to any emerging bio threat, whether they be naturally occurring or of any other source. We'd also want to highlight the BPR's direction to improve situational awareness through biosurveillance, to improve and increase our early warning of emerging biothreats. And finally, I will speak to what the, the Department of Defense is doing to improve the research, development, and acquisition responsiveness to emerging threats. On today's topic of biodefense leadership, it seems appropriate to begin with the coordination and collaboration line of effort. 
With the release of the BPR, much of the Biodefense Council's work is now just beginning. The BPR identified an opportunity to better centralize and organize biodefense roles and provide greater oversight via an empowered entity with a holistic collaboration across the department to better synchronize readiness and response needs, to prioritize threats, and to coordinate Department of Defense efforts. This body is chaired by the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, and the Biodefense Council is charged not only with implementing key BPR reforms, but also to empower the department to take a much more collaborative approach to biodefense. We also must continue the emphasis and energy of the BPR to ensure that the Council takes on an authoritative and strategic role in integrating numerous roles and responsibilities without supplanting existing authorities and to serve as much more than strictly a BPR implementation committee. The Biodefense Council now serves as the principal forum to advise the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense and other DOD leadership on biodefense issues. It also is helping to facilitate the integration and information flow across the department to enable collective decision-making and to attack tough and acute biodefense challenges. It is um, also important that it looks to ensuring that there is accountability for each of the roles and responsibility within the department to ensure that they are being fulfilled. Although here our recommendation is slightly different than your original blueprint to elevate biodefense leadership to the, bio, to the vice president, what we are seeking here is that the department for itself is integrated and accountable to a collective body before roles and responsibilities converge at the Deputy Secretary and Secretary of Defense. That way, we put significant capacity and problem-solving capabilities of the OSD components to work to then raise the most critical issues to the senior levels of the department to bring quick decision and collective decision-making, particularly in the event of a crisis. As I already noted, the BPR was a whole of DOD effort involving offices, agencies, combat commands, and services with distinct roles and responsibilities. We know that the services and combatant commands have many priorities and are extremely busy. The Council seeks to help prioritize various biodefense efforts to elevate the most critical issues to the combatant commands as well as the service chiefs while we in OSD work day-to-day -day on the development of guidance, policy, research, and solutions that enhance resilience and readiness. I want to highlight that the Council membership in includes key roles for U.S. Northern Command and U.S. Special Operations Command as the respective coordinating authorities for pandemics and infectious diseases and countering weapons of mass destruction, as well as other combatant commands. This membership is key 
to shaping the Council and thus the Department's strategic approach to biodefense and to ensure that we are working on the most significant operational issues that require planning and preparedness to support the nation's biodefense at home and abroad. As focused internally, um, as I take as a key do out, that the Council must also enable the Department to better communicate the work with all of you as advocates for biodefense, whether it's in the interagency, academia, industry, and otherwise. And as I've noted, we are at a pivotal point to maintain our momentum in biodefense, recognizing the unprecedented number of biocomplex threats. In the department, we are approaching biodefense to support the national defense strategy in three key ways, through integrated deterrence, campaigning, and building enduring advantage. We must focus on the biodefense preparedness and resilience of the total force to ensure that the department has the critical resources it needs and is effectively collaborating across the national biodefense enterprise. On biosurveillance and bio-early warning, Considering the unprecedented number of complex bio-threats globally, the BPR directs the department to develop and pursue a forward-leaning biosurveillance program strategy with clearly defined and ambitious milestones to transform biosurveillance data into actionable decisions focused, focusing information at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. Here, I think it's important to return to the threat considerations which drive our prioritization within biosurveillance and biothreat early warning. Since your national blueprint, the biothreat has continued to grow, enabled by advances in science and technology. It becomes even more difficult to discern the, serendip the uh, hidden intent to develop biological weapons that could inflict catastrophic effects on the United States, the enormous intelligence channel that you highlighted in the 2015 report. The BPR takes a hard look at what we have seen through the COVID-19 pandemic, an infectious disease outbreak that could rapidly um, spread across oceans and continents. We are also looking at intelligence related to the risks of laboratory accidents increasing with the rise and the number of laboratories around the world conducting high-risk life science research and research with the potential pandemic pathogens without appropriate oversight. Additionally, the use of biological weapons or their proliferation by states and non-state actors prevents, provides us with a significant challenge. And most critically, the rapid pace of science and technology advances and the democratization of biotechnology combined with a decrease in international norms creates greater biological risks in terms of numbers and complexities. It is highly unlikely that we will know the origins at the onset of a bio incident. So what the Department of Defense prioritizes as the utmost importance is the resilience and the readiness of our force. 
We know we must strengthen early warning and our threat understanding to enable decisions to be made, but we also are needing to acknowledge that we may need to operate in a biological threat environment that we do not fully understand the origin in the early parts of any kind of outbreak. Consistent with the National Biodefense Strategy, DOD is also striving for early warning to inform and enable early assessment and identification of biothreats and to, to facilitate effective decision-making, not only for the department, but also for whatever role the department may be called upon to help with a public health emergency in the United States or abroad. Biosurveillance as such will be a key enabler for threat characterization, attribution, information sharing, and collaboration with partners. Importantly, this early warning is critical to making timely decisions and ensuring that the department is ready to move forward and to make critical decisions around the development of pharmaceutical countermeasures, stockpile distribution, and supply chain and industrial base enhancements. On our last recommendation regarding rapid response capabilities, the department continues to recognize the need to improve our research, development, and acquisition responsiveness to meet the emerging threats. And as a result, we are beginning with the Commission's Apollo program report, not the BPR. The Apollo recommendations were critical to some of the strategic assessments done internal to the Department of Defense's chemical and biological defense programs and indeed formed the basis for our requests in the development of the FY23 budget to enhance biopreparedness and pandemic preparedness and in ensuring that we are capitalizing on innovations and the success that the nation had in developing countermeasures during the COVID-19 response, including the Department of Defense's contribution to Operation Warp Speed overall. Concurrent with the BioPosture Review, the Department of Defense is pivoting our chemical and biological defense program to speed potential detection and characterization and enable countermeasure rapid response through pathogen agnostic, broad spectrum approaches to address emerging threats. I know my colleague, Mr. Ian Watson, our Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Chemical and Biological Defense Programs, appeared before the commission in March of last year, just as he was beginning to take the helm of the Chem Biodefense Program. Ian and his team, with my leadership and support, are pushing forward key reforms, publishing a new approach to developing medical countermeasures and other medical devices. This approach is geared towards the rapidly changing environment. We all believe that the traditional approach of one bug, one drug is obsolete in the emerging threat environment. The new approach views medical countermeasures along a spectrum. The first line of defense will be broad spectrum and non-specific medical countermeasures 
that can be adapted and scaled quickly. These medical countermeasures, our intent is to reduce the agent's impact to allow the warfighter to for fight through this unknown threat while we are working hard to identify and characterize what it is that is making everyone sick. These medical countermeasures could go after an entire threat class or be used to reduce symptoms, disease progression, and transmission. After characterizing the new threat, the Chem Biodefense Program then expects to, to rapidly develop narrow spectrum treatments that target the causative agent and underlying disease. Day to day, we are now focused on strengthening our rapid response capabilities by developing various threat agnostic medical countermeasure platforms. And these platforms include mRNA, vaccine manufacturing lines, monoclonal antibodies, and repurposing existing drug treatments. By developing medical countermeasures through phase one clinical trials during non-emergencies, we will learn critical lessons to increase and hopefully reduce the time from identification to producing medical countermeasures at scale. Because I've discussed in some detail the work of the de um, defense's counter uh, chemical, biological, and defense program, I think it is also important to note that the BPR also considered the department's broader research and development enterprise, including the defense health program, and whether a change in authorities, responsibilities, or processes could improve our overall approach to biodefense. What our review found is that the chemical biological defense program going side by side with our defense health program have sufficiently unique missions, partners and processes that drive a spirit of competition and innovation across the whole biothreat space of naturally occurring, accidental and biothreats. So as we are implementing the bioposture review reforms, we are also contributing to the overall transformation of the military health system and DHP opportunities to review investments broadly in medical research. Moving beyond DOD's internal collaboration, we continue to stand ready as we have been traditionally as a support to civil authorities and expect certainly that that role will not change for the Department of Defense, regardless of the source of the conflict or the biodefense threat. I opened this morning with an assertion that we are at a critical moment in biodefense as we face an unprecedented number of complex threats. I appreciate this opportunity to share the work that we are doing and the work that we have completed through the biodefense review and through the leadership and collaboration of the Biodefense Council. I stand ready to answer any questions that you may have and greatly appreciate your time. Uh, thanks very much, Secretary Rosenblum. That, that was a uh, great opening statement. You've given us a lot to work with as we prepare uh, Blueprint, Blueprint 2.0. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was impressed by the uh, bio uh, defense posture review from the Pentagon, which came out this summer. I think it's the most 
a substantial response to President Biden's national biodefense strategy. And of course, um, uh, doubly or more, even more important because it comes from the Pentagon, which by far uh, has the largest budget and the most personnel of any agency in the federal government. I thought that, um, well, let me begin this way. Sometimes when I tell people I'm involved on this commission, they say, okay, we had a pandemic, but is there really a bioweapons threat anymore? I mean, we haven't seen it since, so people think, since anthrax after uh, 9-11. And uh, I thought it was um, really important that in the in the BPR, as you call it, the Pentagon made clear that uh, the bio threat is real, and uh, it it is centered in the countries that generally challenge us most today, both the the rising or uh, maybe Russia is not rising anymore, but the great power challengers to our great power status, Russia and China, and uh, Iran, which has now become the headquarters for the continuing um, uh, uh, conflict we have with Islamist terrorism, and North Korea, which is a classic uh, anti-American rogue nation. So um, I, I just wanted to ask you, without I know you can't do it um, in, in enormous detail, but um, give us a little more nuance, a little more uh, flesh on the bones of your conclusion that the bioweapons threat to the U.S. and to the to the Pentagon is real. Great, thank you very much. Um, that is a terrific uh, question to start off this session with because it really goes to the heart at what we are looking at and what we are concerned about. You know, as noted in the BPR, uh, the Department of State, which has responsibility for publicly flagging concerns um, that the U.S. government may have with regards to compliance with the BWC as well as other international norms has consistently raised concerns and broad questions with regard to the accuracy of um, understanding the compliance with that. When we couple together things that— By by other countries. By other countries, yes, absolutely. Correct. I'm sorry. Thank you for clarifying. The U.S. is absolutely in compliance with the BWC and does not have an offensive program of any nature. Um, Just to clarify, thank you. And particularly in light of uh, Russian disinformation, that is actually a question that I get all the time. Um, And we are spending a good deal of time and energy in making the public record clear that that is nothing that the U.S. has nor supports Um, But with regards to, as you note, other countries' um, compliance with that, when you bundle that together with what has been articulated for quite some time over the past several years in the rapid development of science and technology, and perhaps uh, even more importantly, its convergence across multiple disciplines where we traditionally thought about biology as biology, but then when we are combining it with 
engineering, with uh, physics and other scientific disciplines, it really broadens the range on aperture of what, be it a nation state or a non-state actor, or in the case of what we are looking at in the Middle East right now, a quasi state actor really broadens the realm of what is available to um, individuals or countries that are set on um, abusing these technologies. Um, and we also remain uh, concerned about non-state actors as well. So it's really the elements of all of these threats as we look at our national defense strategy that is broadening the aperture and is focused on our near peer competitors that is really raising concerns around biodefense threats. So uh, just to wrap it up, and I want to move on so all the members can ask questions. You have no doubt, uh, I know this is a, not a, a, a classified setting, but you have no doubt that Russia, China, Iran, North Korea do have active uh, bioweapons programs. Uh, Senator, my job is to ensure that our forces are protected regardless of the source and um, consistent for a while with the biodefense um, definition being naturally occurring an accident or the lab or were there to be some willful introduction into the environment. Uh, my job and the job of the Department of Defense is to ensure that we are taking care of our joint warfighters and that they will be as safe as possible, regardless of the source of the bio threat. So, okay, I'm going to interpret that to mean that you think there is a threat uh, or else you wouldn't be spending all the effort you are. There's the potential for the threat, yes, the Senator. Troops. Okay, Congressman Upton. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll keep my question brief. I the last vote that I cast as a member of Congress uh, last December was in support of the omnibus appropriation bill, which allowed Thank for a, which allowed for an increase in defense. I was one of I think eight Republicans uh, that voted for it, uh, and had we failed, it would have been a CR, and you would have been cut uh, rather dramatically in, in the billions of dollars. You mentioned to us earlier this morning, privately, uh, somewhat privately, uh, that there was indeed a plus up in this year's fiscal year uh, budget. I think you said some near in the near amount of a, about a billion dollars. And you mentioned also that for fiscal year 24, which of course started October 1st, but we're still operating under a CR. We won't see anything happen till January. Uh, you had also sought an increase over the baseline. Uh, I think the number they used was about 800 or so a million dollar increase what happens questions are what have you done with the increase uh, that you got in this fiscal year versus before and second if you don't get that if we end up with the cr and i don't know what the uh, pro what the defense appropriation bill level is at this point between the house and the senate nobody really does uh, but w what will be the impact if you just have a CR based on the 23 level, and, and what will be the change if, in fact, you get the request that the administration sought? Uh, thank I don't you know if OMB is in the room, but uh, go ahead. Thank you very much um, for that question. Just to clarify, in FY23 budget um, that you mentioned was passed as part of the omnibus, 
the increase that you referenced was exclusively for the development of medical countermeasures and vaccines. We did not at that point have the benefit of having finished the BioPosture Review to add additional funding in other parts of the Department of Defense. That is what is currently making up the President's budget for FY24 that is with Congress for consideration. Those monies are focused on improving biosurveillance and early warning. It is also focused on improving um, intelligence and uh, information sharing. It is also focused on funding that's required for additional training and exercising of our forces, taking into account bio scenarios. And it is also focused on uh, better detection and sen sensors. And those are based on those funding requests come out of recommendations from the BioPosture Review. That budget right now is up with Congress. Uh, were we to face a CR, the department and certainly our secretary and deputy have been consistent that CRs are devastating to the department, regardless of the size of any agency's budget, um, because of the planning and programming that goes into building those budgets, um, a CR uh, means that we lose time. And in the bio threat area, that is very concerning. We believe that the threat, back to the earlier question, is real and time is not on our side. And it will prevent us from enhancing our training and exercising, improving early warning, and uh, as well as the um, you know continued work on the medical countermeasures and vaccine development. Just as the last follow-up, and then I yield back, uh, I know the NDAA reauthorization is supposed to be up next week. Um, where Did you get authorization language uh, to support the appropriation level? Do you know where that is or not? Uh, yeah, there are differences uh, between the House and the Senate, um, and those are... Um, so, yes, uh, the authorization... Uh, is supporting some aspects of the appropriation, but given that there are differences between the House and the Senate, we're still uh, they're still sorting it through in conference. But we've had an opportunity to work with uh, uh, staffers with regards to that. Right. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Uh, so there's... Thank you. Um, this informing, um, how is this informing uh, the good guys? Uh, it does not, it seems to me, it, it does not much good if we have the most sophisticated system in the world, but the rest of the world isn't prepared at the same time, particularly in this area of obviously of biodefense. So can you talk a little about the relationship to the other army, to the other defense departments or countries in terms of their preparation and how your report is informing them. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. I think I would address it in, in uh, two ways, uh, Madam Secretary. One, in terms of directly to your question, um, allies and partners was a critical piece of what we looked at as part of the bio posture review consistent with our national defense strategy, which recognizes that the United States will not fight alone and nor can it. And so there is a premium put 
um, on not only enhancing some of our allies and partners' capabilities in the biodefense realm, and that happens uh, traditionally through the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, where there is an effort to um, help to support them in peacetime as well as certainly during, during crisis. Um, and it also is helping with working on commonalities on supply chain and industrial base, particularly with some of our closest allies where we share many of the same supply chains. So it's not just strictly from a capabilities, but it's really broadly holistic. So that was an area of focus in the BPR. Another area of focus relevant to your question is what the Department of Defense is doing in support of other U.S. federal agencies that have responsibility in this. And our responsibilities under the National Biodefense Strategy take two forms. One, in deterring the, uh, the use, potentially, of any kind of offensive bioweapon, but it also is to help to support the other efforts that are underway and the development of medical countermeasures and vaccines is a very uh, perfect example of that. The Department of Defense right now is working very closely with HHS um, and all of the family of agencies with regards to that on the very ambitious goal of the 100 days for the development of a uh, vaccines and countermeasures against any kind of novel threat that would be encountered. And that's another area where in the bio posture review, we affirmed that developments that come out of our chem, chem bio defense program not only benefit our troops, but also have attendant benefits with our civilian agencies. Sorry, Tom. <clears throat> Sorry, I, I, I was speaking to you, but without my mic on. So, Tom Dashley, you're next if you have a question. Thank you very much, Jill. Uh, let me just, if I could, uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Secretary Rosenbaum, for your excellent uh, comments. I, I, uh, I'm taking a lot of notes here. Uh, I want to just uh, talk about uh, a topic that our next panel is going to be addressing because I I think it's such a critical issue, and that's obviously smallpox. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in the, in the uh, earlier session. Um, I think everybody can fully appreciate that uh, uh, in the 20th century, smallpox caused an estimated 305 worldwide. Kills, it killed three out of every 10 people that have infected. Just a, a terrifying statistic, and the eradication of smallpox was a was a remarkable achievement that sadly I, I don't think we could repeat today. The only known stocks of smallpox are, are held by the United States and Russia. But this doesn't mean that other nations don't have them or aren't seeking to acquire them. And the barrier to recreating uh, smallpox in a laboratory is, is lower now than it's ever been before. Could you just speak to the threat of smallpox that motivates the United States uh, medical countermeasure development procurement programs? did a pivot and a different approach that we're taking in our chem biodefense program, we do remain very concerned about the traditional threats that we have faced in the past, and you've articulated them for certainly with the 
um, smallpox. So the department certainly continues to support the development of uh, countermeasures uh, and vaccines against um, smallpox. Thank you. Thank you. Joe, I'll turn it back to you. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, Congresswoman Brooks. Thank you, Secretary Rosenblum, for your incredible um, testimony before us today. I'm very, very pleased uh, about the Biodefense Council within DOD, but I am curious um, what view you think the Biodefense Council will have as this administration, future administrations focus on uh, national biodefense strategy. How will the work of DOD's Biodefense Council, and then secondly, what obstacles does the Biodefense Council face um, as we continue to stress its importance um, in, in trying to codify how important the Biodefense Council is? What are some of the obstacles? Great. Thank you very much, uh, Madam Congresswoman. Um, the uh, focus and view with regards to what the Biodefense Council will be um, focusing in on in support of our national biodefense strategy is really to ensure that the work of the department um, in support of that strategy is going on and perhaps most importantly, because there are over time trade-offs with regards to resources, particularly in the budget environment that we are facing, that the senior most leadership of the department is making those decisions in, in weighing their priorities against um, other priorities that may be there uh, in support of not just the Department of Defense, but civilian agencies as well. I think the obstacles that the, the Biodefense Council will be facing are a broader set of obstacles that the Department of Defense faces broadly in the biodefense uh, and biothreat area. Even if we did not have a Biodefense Council, um, this is an area where the department is very challenged, I would say, uh, culturally in how it thinks about uh, the the risks and potentials of bio threats and the recalling that, you know, our national defense strategy until the last five, six years was very much focused on what was happening in the Middle East, the U.S. role in Afghanistan and in other parts of the Middle East, the role of non-state actors, and it, looking at the potential for in a near-peer competitor environment at some of the asymmetric capabilities that our adversaries may be developing. It is something that is requiring the department to think differently about how it approaches that, uh, not just in terms of protective gear and everything that we normally think about, but is it fully integrated into the training and exercising? Is it integrated into the development of requirements for the joint warfighter? Are the services prioritizing this? All of these are things that the department is challenged with. I think I'm very um, optimistic that the leadership is very clear 
about the importance of this threat area and their support for it. But anytime we are um, working on and implementing a new defense strategy, including areas like the, the chemical and biological threat that's called out, it is going to um, require rigor and dedication towards it. And that is some of the obstacles that the Biodefense Council will encounter. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your service as well. Um, there's an old saying about uh, armies being prepared to fight the last war. And, um, and you've made some comments about the rapid pace of the science developing, um, other disciplines being utilized to, to, to enhance the threat. So my question is, how does DOD, um, how does it manage um, to keep up with um, the fast pace of, of the science, the developments in the science, and the fast pace of changes in the geopolitical realities of the world <clears throat> so that you're, you're in fact, ahead of the game instead of um, behind uh, in your preparation. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think it's a combination on drawing on a broad range of resources to do that. Certainly the department has a great deal of capability in its traditional areas. Um, the, you know, certainly within the Army, within DITRA and other places where a lot of the research within the Department of Defense is being done. Um, but we are not just relying strictly on that in-house. We are augmenting that with support and assistance from our uh, DOE national laboratories. We are working very closely um, with uh, Lawrence Livermore out in California with regards to that. And we're also trying to much more actively certainly engage industry uh, and the private sector. This is not something that we feel we can do in any way alone. Um, but are very um, wanting to much better partner and understand, um, even if companies and private sector don't ultimately contractually enter into something with the Department of Defense, it is incredibly valuable for us to understand where they believe technologies are going, where they are concerned there may be abuses. Uh, DNA synthesis is a perfect example of that. And the better we can educate ourselves, not just on what we're seeing through intelligence or the Department of Defense, but really the whole bioeconomy and the biotech with that, we will be much better off. And that is something I have been really uh, dogged about um, as head of the Chem Biodefense Program. Please get out, talk with our centers of excellence around our country who are doing cutting edge work understand what they're focused on, understand what they're worried about, understand where they see potentially technologies going, because we are going to be equally reliant on that to help us to solve the problems, not just where some of the threats are. Good answer. Thanks. <laughs> okay, you got an A on that one. Uh, uh, Dr. Peggy Hamburg. Thank you, and I think I'd give you an A on your whole uh, uh, presentation and discussion with us. Um, I also was struck by the fact that my fellow commissioners um, have already asked the question specifically that I was um, hoping to raise uh, with you. Um, but uh, so therefore, I'm going to go very concrete, not 
big picture, but um, sort of a segue into the session we're going to be having later. Um, when I was working for Donna Shalala as an assistant secretary at the Department of Health and Human Services um, in the Clinton administration, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we became concerned about the threat of smallpox, and um, we were trying to build up a, a biopreparedness program um, uh, at HHS that would be more comprehensive and more forward-leaning. And, um, and I learned that DOD, and she put me in charge of doing this uh, work, um, I learned that DOD had uh, a contract to um, uh, produce um, a, a fairly limited number of smallpox vaccines um, for use, as they put it, in the military theater. Um, we wanted a lot more because we wanted to have enough to be able to really ensure the safety of the um, civilian population in the U.S., um, but I, I spent hours and hours pounding um, the hallways of DOD and talking um, to uh, people about whether there was any way that we could um, uh, join your contract um, for a larger do um, amount of, of smallpox vaccine and trying to figure out how we could, could work together. In the end, it didn't work. We started from scratch um, uh, and a process that, that took longer and probably was more expensive, but you know, ultimately, and I also, I have to confess, thought that DOD was being a little narrow in their thinking because they didn't want as much vaccine as I actually thought they would need if there was ever a, you know, a need for one dose, there was gonna be a need for more than 300,000, which I think was what they were. Anyway, it was very, very frustrating that um, we couldn't work together on such an important common goal that would, in fact, have a lot of overlap in terms of the nature of the threat and how it would unfold. I'm just wondering, have we made progress uh, since those days and as part of the work of your new posture review, also looking at how to make sure that systems um, can be better integrated when they need to be across many domains of activity that are both um, military uh, and civilian, you know, whether it's um, like you were responding to the last question, gaining better intelligence about the nature of the threat um, or collecting better data about early detection um, and um, surveillance or uh, the research agenda. But, but and of course, procurement and um, supply chains, et cetera. Is that something that you feel continues to be a disconnect in some ways that um, is harmful to our shared progress, or do you feel that we really have been able to address those kinds of concerns in a more um, uh, effective way? So I think the honest answer is it remains a work in progress. Um, I think uh, certainly the experience um, for our government uh, throughout COVID-19 really reinforced the need to approach things in a very different manner than historically had, had been the case. Um, I, so I, I think that rigidity with regards to, as you elaborate, you know, who's doing what for whom um, has certainly gotten a lot better. Um, I think it is, uh, you know, I'll give you a traditional Department of Defense role answer that, you know, we are there to support, but have preference that uh, certainly civil agencies develop the capacity to do certain things. Um, but I think the reality is our experience and particularly 
um, with all of the contracting that the Department of Defense did in support of the national emergency has, um, you know, eased some of those more rigid boundaries um, that are there. I also think another thing that is significant um, under this administration was the conscious decision to have a lot of this centralized at the White House. And so it then becomes something where you don't just have individual agencies off necessarily doing different things, but that there can be a certain level of prioritization to say A, B, and C are priorities. Where are there areas beyond just the agency that may have primary responsibility for something where additional support can can be gotten? And I can tell you, and Raj knows this, the White House is not shy about calling. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, thank you. Um, a final question. We, we have a custom here to call on one ex-officio member to ask a question. I'm just, I will uh, take the liberty of telling this story. When I arrived in the Senate, one of the people I became friendly with was Senator Dan Inouye. Um, like uh, Senator Daschle, much to my benefit, he became a mentor to me. So uh, I asked Dan one day, how are things different in the Senate? today from when you arrived, and, um, well, he said many ways, but he said, I'll tell you one you won't believe. Uh, he arrived, as I recall, in 1963, after having been in the House, and he was told that uh, it, it would not be right for him to speak on the floor of the Senate until Senator Lyndon Johnson, the majority leader, invited him. So I said, I, I'm amazed, because uh, I'd come in with 10 other Senators, Tom, and uh, we had all spoken many times the first week or two. So I said, when did you get the call? Senator Johnson called me in April. So he'd been there January, February, March, April. So I'm glad to say we do not follow that policy here. And that leads me to call on Dr. Raj Punjabi to ask you the final question of the morning. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair and, and Secretary Rosenblum. I at least can confess I never called you at midnight or after hours. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> I do want to thank you for your leadership and echo um, colleagues on the commission because, you know, your vision and uh, that you articulated, I think, first in a situation room meeting with me uh, a couple of years ago now has has really come to fruition. And this, these are not easy things to pull off in any institution. And I, 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 the, the nation owes you a, a debt of gratitude, so thank you for that. I, I want to bring up the tension that is inherent in throughout your testimony. It, biotechnology can save us. It can only if we stop our adversaries from using it to harm us. And I think the the bioeconomy acceleration that you bring up uh, is is very real. Last year, when the president was rolling out his bioeconomy executive order, we cited data that that some thirty trillion dollars of economic value is is can materialize by the year twenty thirty just from that sector alone. So there's a very strong incentive in the private sector to accelerate this biotechnology, and you brought that up. What is the Department of Defense's role in collaborating with the private sector to help you manage the downside, manage the risk 
that that you've you've brought up um, state and non-state actors then getting access to those technologies and using it to harm us. So um, I'm glad you raised that because it's an area that I didn't touch on in my remarks, but is one where we are very concerned. Um, you know, I, I don't think overall we in the U.S. government are doing a great job talking to the public and to private sector about where some of the risks are. Um, part of that has to do with a great deal of complicated issues with regards to classification and sources and methods and whatnot. But, you know, we, we've not gotten it right yet. And so as a result of that, um, we've got certainly a very large number of well-intentioned, very innovative and creative uh, partners contributing in the bioeconomy without a full picture of where some of the risks lay and where some of the things are that we're concerned about. So I think at DOD, we have been an advocate for working very hard at trying, while respecting all of the boundaries and guardrails, to be making more information public and available and accessible. Um, two, I also, Department of Defense sits on the CFIUS Committee which is the committee that um, evaluates foreign ownership purchases of American companies. And, you know, we see a big divide, and this won't shock anybody, between the national security agencies and our economic agencies. And I think work that we are working on and trying to do at Department of Defense with our economic colleagues to really make sure that we are having the full picture um, not only just the economic benefits, but also where some of the undersides are, not just with the technologies, but data, the large amount of data that's available um, that's being taken out of the United States and the U.S. economy with regards to that. So, you know, I, I think there's issues with regards to, you know, one, uh, making us much more public you know, what we believe the threats are that we are facing, and two, working to proactively bridge between economic interests and national security interests um, so that the most effective and best decisions can be made, because uh, these are not easy at all. Uh, Secretary, thanks very much. Testimony's been enormously helpful, and obviously, uh, with your consent, we would like to with you as we move, move toward issuing our uh, report next year. In the meantime, uh, thanks for your service. No, thank you very much. And, you know, I really can't underscore how important the work of your commission is, not only going forward, but certainly, as I mentioned in my remarks, something that we have drawn upon um, in many of your recommendations to improve the work that we're doing at the Department of Defense in the biodefense area. So I really look forward to, as you put it, 2.0 yeah. version coming out. Yeah, uh, I don't want to encourage covert action, but uh, if there's ever an idea that you have for us that you think would better emerge from the commission than from yourself and the don't hesitate. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get started. Uh, I want to announce that uh, we're, for those of you that are watching carefully the schedule and the minutes, we're behind. We're not going to have the second break. So if you need to use the restroom, just 
know that we're not going to have a second break. Um, but I'm delighted to, to welcome our second of our three panels. We are, we are joined by uh, Dr. Laura Efros, who is the Vice President of the U.S. Governmental Affairs for Bavarian Nordic. Mr. Paul Williams, uh, who is a Senior VP of Products, Business, Emergent Biosolutions. And by Jay Varma, Dr. Jay Varma, Executive VP and Chief Medical Officer of SIGA, SIGA or SIGA? SIGA uh, Technologies. Uh, and we're going to start with uh, Dr. Infos. So if you'd limit your remarks to about five minutes, um, then we'll do questions after you all finish. So any, welcome. Thank you. Floor is yours. Great. Well, Thank you very much. Um, Laura Efros, as you said, uh, VP of U.S. Government Affairs at Bavaria Nordic. And it's really an honor uh, to speak before the commission today uh, on behalf of my company. Uh, just a few words about what Bavaria Nordic is. So we're a fully integrated vaccine company founded in 1994, and we're focused on research, development, manufacturing, and commercial commercialization of life-saving vaccines. And most notably for the discussion today, our vaccine to prevent smallpox and mpox. And this is the vaccine known in the U.S. as Geneas or um, its generic name, Modified Vaccinia Ankara or MVA. So Geneas grew out of a highly successful, nearly 20-year partnership with the U.S. government and primarily BARDA to develop and manufacture a safer smallpox vaccine, and this primarily for people with compromised immune systems who could not safely take the traditional replicating smallpox vaccines. Uh, the vaccine we developed using our proprietary platform technology was approved by the FDA in 2019 for the prevention of smallpox, and in what turned out to be a prescient decision by the FDA and BN, also for prevention of mpox. And again, this was back in 2019. Um, we're really proud that Geneas played a critical role in the response to the recent unprecedented MPOX outbreak that affected the U.S. and many other countries. Uh, using the real-world data that came out of um, the recent outbreak, the CDC and other expert bodies found that the vaccine was safe and effective and upwards of um, uh, pre preventing um, the smallpox infection at uh, upwards of 89%. Um, we were able to supply approximately 4 million doses um, in 70 countries and to international organizations. Um, so it, we feel like it was a, a really important opportunity for us to contribute to the public health response. Our partnership with BARDA has also enabled us to develop MVA, that's the um, essentially Geneas, as a platform against other emerging diseases including an Ebola vaccine that we developed in partnership with Johnson & Johnson, and this was used in response to the Ebola crisis in 2014, um, as well as equine encephalitis, for which we're developing MBA-based vaccine candidates in partnership with the Department of Defense. We're proud of our partnership with BARDA and are gratified that we've been able to contribute to the public health response to MPOX. Um, however, uh, we have concerns about our country's level of preparedness for smallpox, as we've heard this morning, others have raised this as well, um, should there be a deliberate or accidental release. As you're all aware, smallpox is one of the deadliest and most contagious diseases in human history, so the consequences would be far more dire than with mpox. Um, however, the U.S. stockpile for smallpox 
did not meet the government requirements for preparedness even before the MPOX outbreak, and now it's further depleted without clear plans for replenishment. So drawing from our 20-year history of government partnerships in the countermeasure space, we would offer recommendations in two areas, the first being around stockpile requirements. So first, our recommendation is that requirements for medical countermeasures should be updated on a scheduled basis based on the most up-to-date assessment of risks to the public and to national security, not the available budget. Second, that those requirements should be should be shared not just with Congress, but as well with private sector partners, you know, within the bounds of national security. And this would um, allow appropriate oversight and help private sector partners, such as BN, accurately assess and deliver on the government's needs. And finally, government contracting should provide more certainty to the private sector that products will be replenished um, and options will be exercised in accordance with those requirements. The second area is around government funding. Congress should ensure adequate sustainable funding for the medical countermeasure enterprise, which I think anyone here would agree with. You know, our vaccine for smallpox and mpox exists because the U.S. government invested in preparedness nearly two decades ago. Our own funding, together with funding from NIH, BARDA, and Project BioShield, supported the development, manufacturing, and stockpiling of Geneus. But however, because of inadequate appropriations, the stockpile of filled doses of Geneus was allowed to expire. This left us dangerously unprepared for a smallpox incident, should there be one, and delayed the response to MPOX. One proposed solution is that Congress should codify a process by which ASPR would submit a professional judgment budget for medical countermeasure stockpiling to Congress, but without modification from OMB to ensure that actual preparedness requirements are reflected in the submission. And this would provide important insight and transparency for Congress to understand the true resource requirements for a biodefense bio enterprise. We believe these steps will help ensure that the U.S. is able to maintain our readiness to respond to future bio threats and at the same time eliminate some of the uncertainty and unpredictability for companies who partner with the government to develop these important countermeasures. I'll just close by saying again of how proud we are of our partnership with BARDA and the development of Geneas, and we hope that the swift response to MPOX will provide leaders with the proof they need to make the case for future investments. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Williams. All right, good afternoon. Thank you to the Bipartisan Commission for the invitation to participate in this certainly timely and important discussion. Uh, I'm Paul Williams. I serve as the Senior Vice President uh, of the Products Business at Emergent. Um, Emergent is a global life sciences company based in Gaithersburg, Maryland. We develop, manufacture, and deliver medical countermeasures like vaccines and treatments developed to counteract public health threats such as anthrax, smallpox, botulism, and threats from chemical weapons. Products you hope to never use, uh, but know you need. Uh, we are also responding to the opioid crisis by making Narcan nasal spray, a product that is being used every day to give people a second chance. For more than 25 years, Immersion has worked in partnership with the United States and allied governments to protect soldiers and civilians across the globe. We have a portfolio of medicines indicated for smallpox. Many of you are familiar with ACAM 2000, which is indicated for active immunization against smallpox disease for persons determined to be at high risk for smallpox infection. We recently acquired Tembexa, which is the first antiviral approved by the United States FDA for all age groups for the treatment of smallpox. And we have a long history of providing vaccinia immune globulin to the US government, which is indicated for the treatment of complications due to vaccinia vaccination. Our experience collaborating with governments has taught us many lessons. We believe that a sustained and robust commitment from the government underpins the success of all future preparedness efforts. 
It starts with strategic direction and communication across all of government so threats can be acted upon. As current global events underscore, pandemics and bad actors can and will strike at any time. It must also include a sustained commitment to public-private partnerships that is accompanied by transparency, certainty, and communication to strengthen our collective ability to prepare and respond to threats. My primary message to the Commission today is that when the government and the private sector work together, America is better prepared. Emergent is proud of the work with the United States to expand medical countermeasures research, develop, and manufacturing. We've seen how a thoughtful balance of federal funding and market incentives create an atmosphere of innovation for medical countermeasures that otherwise have no commercial market. Smallpox is a great example. Developing and manufacturing smallpox vaccines is no easy task, and the private sector plays a critical role in protecting Americans against this threat. Public-private partnerships have led to, expanded to, have led to an expanded stockpile of smallpox vaccines and new innovations uh, for other smallpox medical countermeasures. These successful partnerships have also resulted in innovations beyond just smallpox. Smallpox vaccines are now being used to address other orthopox virus threats like mpox. Maintaining these partnerships can be challenging. Predictable funding and clear guidance from the government provide the impetus for companies to step in and help address the challenge. When those pieces are in place, the pace of development of manufacturing can meet the need of any threat, biological or man-made. This also enhances the industry's ability to build expertise and maintain a skilled workforce and surge-ready facilities. However, often one or both of these essential components for partnership fall short. When funding goes away, companies are forced to reconsider their business case for costly medical countermeasure development. When guidance and communication from the government becomes less clear, industry is unable to plan complex manufacturing processes. Perhaps the most critical component of preparedness is the strategic national stockpile. Originally created to respond to terrorist threats, the SNS continues to be the largest, or in some cases, the sole purchaser of medical countermeasures deemed critical by public health and national security experts. Without federal government investment, many essential emergency products would not exist because there is no commercial market for them. The SNS's scope has expanded over the years from a public insurance policy against terrorist threats to a supplier of personal protective equipment and medical devices that help backstop state and local governments during emergencies. We applaud that over the last few years, Congress, in a bipartisan manner, has dedicated more funds to the SNS. However, federal funding has never matched the initial requirements or adjusted to these expanded expectations. Medical countermeasures do not have an indefinite shelf life. One of the most important roles for the SNS today is replenishing expiring medical countermeasures to ensure vaccines and treatment are readily available during an emergency. Underfunding forces difficult and dangerous decisions about which threats to prepare for. This commission plays an important role in educating Congress and the public about these complex issues, and we appreciate your advocacy to ensure the United States is specifically prepared against all threats. As the commission is compiling recommendations, I'd like you to share three things for your consideration. First would be more transparent communication with industry and clear and reliable schedules for procurement that would ensure that we have a reliable supply chain for critical countermeasures. It would also incentivize additional companies to enter into this space. Second, as recommended by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, the FEMC should incorporate input from a balance of external partners through an advisory committee to ensure there's expertise to address a variety of threats and support a holistic view of national preparedness. FEMC strategic planning and decision-making around stockpile needs should be made in concert with the advisory committee and consider industry partner perspectives. And finally, the SNS must have enough funds from Congress to support ongoing smallpox vaccine procurement while protecting against all other threats we face. 
Emergent looks forward to continuing to partner with the U.S. government to address public health threats, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Varma. Great. Uh, good afternoon, members of the commission. Uh, my name is Jay Varma. I'm the executive vice president and chief medical officer of CIA Technologies and also retired captain in the United States uh, Public Health Service. On behalf of our company, I thank the commission for this important discussion about preparing our nation against the threat of smallpox and other threats, agents of bioterrorism. Before joining SIGA Technologies, I spent uh, 20 years with the uh, U.S. Centers for Disease Control, leading infectious disease detection and response programs in uh, Bangkok, Beijing, uh, Ethiopia, and in New York City. And I've led multiple out outbreak responses to high-threat pathogens, um, including Ebola, multidrug-resistant TB, uh, Zika virus, and most recently, I led the COVID-19 response in the city of New York um, in April 2020 onward. Sika Technologies, my company, is a manufacturer of TPOX, which is an antiviral agent approved by the FDA for the treatment of people with symptomatic smallpox disease. The drug has also been approved for the treatment of MPOX, a sister virus of smallpox, um, by the European Medicines Agency and the UK Regulatory Agency. And even though smallpox was eradicated in 1980, I think the reason we're here today is because the threat of a deliberate or accidental release of this pathogen remains and would be devastating to health, wealth, and stability. To reduce our vulnerability to this threat, the U.S. government has stockpiled roughly 2 million courses of TPOX, the drug that our company manufactures, with the intent to deploy it in the event of an accidental or deliberate release of a smallpox agent. Although the details of the national response strategy are classified, of course, uh, the primary strategy for the government depends upon vaccination um, and the use of our drug, uh, drug as an adjunctive agent uh, in people at high risk for severe complications. Since 2004, SEGA has had a very close partnership with the U.S. government, um, a close and trusted partnership that's really been modeled after everything that was anticipated with the 2004 BioShield Act. Even more notable, um, this partnership uh, ensured that we had a drug available for the treatment of MPOX, a disease that was not predicted to cause a global pandemic in 2022. Working in collaboration with scientists at NIH and at BARDA, SIGA was able to develop a first-of-its-class drug um, by screening a chemically diverse library of over 350,000 agents back in 2004. Um, over the next decade, so it took over 10 years, with additional funding and scientific collaboration um, with multiple other government agencies, including DOD, CDC, and FDA, our company conducted a number of trials, most of them done in animals and a large expanded safety trial in humans um, that were used to demonstrate the potential efficacy in humans and to identify the correct dosing for this drug. Subsequently, in collaboration with the FDA, the grant, FDA granted a number of important designations. Uh, our company's application was given a fast track and priority review designation um, and awarded the drug both an orphan drug designation, which provides incentives to assist and encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases, as well as a material threat medical countermeasure priority review voucher, which provides additional incentives for certain medical products intended to treat or prevent harm from specific public health threats. The drug was approved eventually by the FDA in 2018 with a labeling requirement that it be sold exclusively uh, to government for the treatment of symptomatic smallpox disease. And since 2018, we've been working with the Department of Defense on proving the benefit of TPOX in another potential role for a smallpox attack, 
um, to give it as a pill to our armed forces to prevent uh, forces from getting sick in the first place. And I'm pleased to say that the DOD began procuring T-pox for this purpose in 2021 in anticipation of FDA eventually approving it formally for this indication. We have additionally, uh, before the 2022 MPOX pandemic, Siegel had sold a small quantity of the product to WHO uh, for the use in uh, for rapid deployers in low-income countries. And in 2022, our company donated over 2,500 courses to WHO uh, for management of the MPOX pandemic. I believe that our experience identifying, researching, and developing TPOX shows what a successful public-private partnership can do to protect the American people, an experience we've seen, um, again, with the diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutic development that happened in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I believe these experiences also showed some of the gaps that we have in our preparedness system that I believe we must address before the next major event, whether it's naturally occurring, accidental, or deliberate. So based on my extensive experience domestically and globally in biodefense and my current work with SEGA Technologies, I recommend three important actions for the commission to consider. First, we must ensure that our national stockpile remains up to date with the latest medications and insufficient supply to protect Americans in all possible threat scenarios. Second, we must continue to support research in collaboration with industry on improving our stockpile of antiviral medications. In a rising world of anti-vaccine sentiment, we need to have a belts and suspenders approach to pandemic threats that also has plans in place for the rapid manufacturing of um, known antivirals, as well as the rapid development of new agents when necessary. And third, we must support our global allies and multilateral partners, including WHO and other UN agencies in building national stockpiles as well. So they are not relying on the United States in the event of a deliberate or natural release overseas. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Um, and I'll lead off with a couple of questions. So, so, so help me, the, the T-pox helps both uh, combat both smallpox as well as M-pox. Is that right? Yes, correct. And, and I think that... Um, the enactment of what would I help lead when I was chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, 21st Century Cures, we allowed companies like yours to actually manufacture the product before it was later approved by uh, the FDA, which was a huge help uh, with, with COVID. As an example, Pfizer uh, was able to, once it was approved, literally 24 hours later, it was on the, the trucks going out uh, across the country to, to save lives uh, in, in terms of the vaccination. Uh, I don't know the answer to this question. So I often say, don't ask the question if you don't know the answer, but I don't know the answer. It is important that the stockpile be as updated as, as we can. And it is very important that um, the resources are there. The, the question that I ask is, have you all followed the 24 appropriation cycle to see exactly where they might be as we look towards uh, fiscal year 24? Are we woefully short? I mean, is it level funding? I mean, you know, when you talk about uh, making sure that the stockpile is up to date, we're all concerned about, as an example, the smallpox because they've, they've gone beyond the uh, expiration date. And so I know the FDA is 
is looking at seeing if they if that was actually accurate or can they make some changes to to extend the date that that it's effective. But where should we be? I guess that's the question. Where should we be as we look at fiscal year twenty four funding uh, to uh, fund the uh, appropriate levels in the stockpile for something like smallpox? Um, I can. I don't know the specifics of the appropriation. One of my colleagues might, but let me. I'll just give a broad, very brief, broad response, and then then my colleagues can maybe give some more details. You know, one of the concerns that I think exists, not just us who have a commercial interest, but I think those in the public health sector, is that you know the current strategy is based on very limited supply, based on a very narrow you know potential outbreak. The notion that it would occur probably in a, we don't know the exact details, but in a single city, and that vaccination would be sufficient to contain its response. Um, you know, our concern with the stockpile is that it doesn't actually uh, number one account for all the possible threat scenarios, multiple you know, different cities being attacked. Uh, number two, it doesn't necessarily account for, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy and resistance, which we know has increased dramatically, you know, in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Um, and then third, of course, that it may need other agents in there as well, too, to be developed over time uh, because of diversity of pathogens and, and drug resistance. So that's the broad concern that I have, but my colleagues may know more about the actual appropriation. Yeah, I think in terms of where we want to be is where where do we want to be, which I think is making sure that we have enough vaccine to protect the entire population. The definition of that is that with current indated material or potentially having to use first or second generation vaccine, which is either potentially expired or quite old. Um, I think coming out of COVID, what we've experienced with um, with the SNS is obviously demands on them have increased significantly with expanded requirements and maybe more of a transactional mindset in terms of year-to-year uh, funding and decisions on how to procure smallpox vaccine. Um, and we've seen probably a reduction in terms of volume and procurements over the last 24 to 36 months. That's been our experience so far. Lauren? Uh, sure. I would just add that, um, I mean, you can just look at the ASPR multi-year budget um, to get a sense of, um, you know, what the amount that they see as is actually needed, which is significantly larger than you see in so the we have 50% of what we, what we need? Do we have 25% of what we need? What, well, what's the... I don't know. I think it depends on each... Um, uh, um, each product that um, and the specific... But that's also different from... Um, what we've seen as um, the actual requirement, um, which would take a considerably larger um, uh, funding level to actually meet the kinds of requirements that um, that have been set for protecting the entire civilian population. Right. You know, in our case, for the specific subset that are recommended to have this vaccine. I, mean, I know my time is expiring before I yield it to uh, Senator Lieberman, but just, let me just ask one question, maybe of Dr. Varma. How quickly, let's say something happens, how quickly and how fast can you actually ramp up production and, and what, what are what are the numbers that you would look at? Yeah, this is the one of the major challenges of not having enough drug in the stockpile. It takes us about 180 days to manufacture this drug. Um, and one of the good things that's happened over time is that through U.S. government funding, we have, you know, kept all of the ingredients that go into producing this drug domestically. So we're not worried about a supply chain shortage from the chemical ingredients. But the manufacturing capacity is something that we think this is something the U.S. government can help support is to 
um, allow the, you know, fund the construction of more manufacturing facilities to more rapid development of these, as well as in addition to stockpiling more at any given time. Senator Lieber. Mm, thanks, Fred. Uh, thanks uh, to the three of you. <clears throat> I must say that um, having spent some time when I was in the Senate trying to um, uh, create incentives for uh, companies like yours to get into medical countermeasures for uh, threats that uh, for which there's no market unless there's an outbreak was a real problem. So it's actually quite reassuring that at least the government, uh, together with your initiative, crossed some kind of threshold where, where, where the three of you actually got into this area with regard to smallpox. So I, I thank you for that. Um, you've all talked about the importance, uh, and of course it's undeniable, of keeping the stockpile up to date because if uh, something, if a crisis occurs and it's not up to date, uh, we're going to have a problem. And I, I think some of the suggestions made, as, as you did at the outset, uh, Dr. Efros, about the ASPR uh, doing uh, what might be called a scientific analysis of what it takes, not based on bud budget, how much do we need. <clears throat> but here's my question. Um, I I. I take it that uh, smallpox, if it broke out, would be a particularly uh, serious threat. Um, and you, again, I come back, you all talked about keeping the stockpile up to date, and I, 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 you happen to be the last one to speak, so you said uh, to be ready to beat all possible threat scenarios. That's a reasonable standard. So my, my question is, um, how large is the universe of possible threat scenarios. In other words, how many diseases uh, would, would we reasonably, as, uh, just assuming we're, we're not resource constrained, would we reasonably, I'm not asking for a number, but, and uh, you tell me whether you think the smallpox represents a uniquely uh, dangerous threat, but you, you get my point. How, how big is the challenge that we face here? Nobody was thinking about COVID-19 really when it, when it broke out. So we had a rush and we were lucky that, um, that there was enough innovation and money poured in then from the public and private sector to make it worth the while to the pharmaceutical industry to uh, do this quickly. But uh, that, that's my question. How, how big beyond smallpox is the universe of the threats that ideally we would want to protect the American people from? Yeah, I, I can start. So, you know, in my reference, I was referring to sort of the uh, universe of, of potential smallpox threats, like the way they can be doing. But no, but I think you're, you're, you're asking, obviously, the, 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 the next logical question, which is beyond smallpox, which we've already narrowly defined and agreed is an important threat. How many other pathogens are there? Well, of course, nature can surprise us all the time. Um, and there are some good comprehensive risk assessments that have been produced um, both domestically in the United States, both those discussions occurring in WHO as well as through, you know, collaborative agencies like CEPI, which is a sort of non-governmental, multi, somewhat multilaterally funded entity that have looked at different classes of uh, pathogens that are likely to hit us at any given yeah. time. So the potential universe is large, but the number of sort of what we consider classes or viral families is relatively limited, probably, probably to four or five or six. I mean, it depends on who you talk to and what they do. I think one of the challenges that industry faces, as well as basic science faces, is trying to develop a drug that isn't just targeted against one of those, but as opposed to one of the different versions in there. And that's where we'd sort of make the case of 
how U.S. government funding that all of you played a critical role in developing was beneficial, right? You developed one targeted for smallpox, but it covers the whole family of what we call orthopox viruses. So it will cover you for mpox, and there's other drugs we have in development that could cover other families. So I think that type of funding for broader classes of what we call broad-spectrum antivirals is important. Okay. So, That's a seemingly a manageable task. Well, we, you know, science is manageable with funding, and public health responds to funding, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but of course, everybody uh, wants that funding, so that's, right. the, that's the challenge. I would just add, though, that because of um, what we do know about smallpox, yeah. um, that there there are some unique things about it that require um, um, a really high level of preparedness. Right. And the need to have, and the only way to do that is by having a stockpile. Yeah, unique in terms of the impact of it. Yeah. Yes. Mr. Williams, you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I think it speaks to understanding how we're operating today. If you use smallpox as an example, yeah. Um, the development. So, if you want to think as BARDA as this development engine and all the innovation that could potentially happen there and evaluating new threats, we really need to understand when that handoff happens from BARDA. If we're if it's a stockpiling product or a product that we want to stockpile to prepare for. We've got to think differently in terms of budget, sustainability of funding, sustainability of the capability to deliver, whether that's simple or complex. Um, so maybe some of some of what we're living today with these current products in the stockpiles, specifically with our smallpox conversation, merits some real thought as to how we're not how we're managing it today, but what are we going to do when we start increasing the demands on the stockpile or other areas of preparedness that specifically ones that require, that have no commercial market, right? Yeah. I think that's a really important dichotomy to make. There's others that are obviously have a commercial market and are sustainable through private funding, but for the ones that clearly have no commercial market. Okay, we'll, we'll try to think about that as we go to our report. Thank you. Dr. Shalala. Um, this may be, make me a heretic, but um, in 1947, when there was an outbreak in New York City, uh, the private laboratories provided uh, vaccines very quickly, um, much quicker than 100 and something days. The question is whether we should be focused on production, on cutting the production time as much as we're focused on stockpiling. That um, that alternative, producing them fast. The other thing that you didn't do it, you were probably weren't born yet, but they they distributed something like three or four million vaccines in a month. I mean, it was a whole different uh, approach. So I'm wondering whether we need a better balance between stockpiling and cutting production time, and particularly the procurement, creating the market. We learned a lot during COVID about that. And the question is whether we should take some of that knowledge and um, even if we had to put some money in some of the companies to have them ready on the production side, sort of an off the wall. And I can start, and my colleagues, I, I mean, I think all of us as Americans can say there was a time when our country could do great things, right? And, and hopefully that time hasn't passed. You know, when we saw during COVID, our country could produce a global good uh, through these partnerships. So my hope is that we can get back to a time when we could mass. That was a unique mass vaccination time, right? You know, the standards for manufacturing were different. Um, public ex yeah, and public acceptance were, were very different. And of course, the fear of the threat. So but to, to address your specific question, I think this is absolutely true and I, uh, about trying to invest in 
uh, manufacturing both of the bio, the reagents themselves, but also manufacturing everything that goes into making those, right? We need a supply chain of vials or bottles or syringes or whatever it's needed for the administration of these. And, you know, I would make the case, and I think many of you are already aware of it, that that our medication supply chain for routine medications, whether it comes for cancer or pain medication or anything, is already a significant health security threat that our country faces. So I think that onshoring, you know, all of that manufacturing capacity, maybe explicitly for the purpose of biodefense, is critical. But obviously, there are also going to be secondary benefits that, that help Americans, I think, on a day-to-day basis. Well, we certainly onshored the flu vaccine, for example. To ask a quick follow-up, I'll see my other time. But it's also thinking about new innovations, isn't it? It's thinking about how to develop broader platforms that can be quickly sort of the plug-and-play kind of a notion where, um, you know, we don't, we don't have to rely on the old clunky manufacturing systems and complex supply chains necessarily. It's also thinking about um, uh, new models for what goes into a stockpile versus what are commitments with companies um, to be able to rapidly um, up manufacturing in a crisis, et cetera. This notion, I mean, I think I'd love your perspective on how we can think in new ways. We, we obviously have a lot of investment in an approach now, which is a, a, a sort of a bricks and mortar stockpile approach. But, you know, we also are in a very different, more complex world. And in your work in this area, do you have anything, and this might be a longer term response, um, you know, that could help us sort of think about completely different kinds of strategies to incentivize partnership and support ongoing public-private partnerships to think about, you know, really investing in the 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 new platforms, the new uh, science, and um, and also, you know, a new vision. So I love that question. Um, I think, uh, you know, part and parcel to what we have today is, you know, where can we obviously drive any improvements from a life cycle management shelf life? But I think at some point we need to bridge to a more nimble manufacturing, getting product out the door quicker um, and being able to, I think as Jay was saying, make sure we have a reliable supply chain around there. I think it speaks to this notion of how do we get industry and other partners to the table early to understand how do we bridge from today and not lose sight of what we need to do to maintain preparedness and response today to get to those particular initiatives. And I think that's 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 the real opportunity, I think, for this commission. If, if as you look at how do we prioritize the threats known and unknown, what are the innovative ways to go at that? BARDA certainly echoed that in their five-year strategic plan and looking at different delivery um, opportunities for their anthra- anthrax vaccine as well as smallpox. Um, but I think there's a real opportunity for us at a macro level to look at these core threats and what, what makes sense and what can be done. Because um, I think industry has demonstrated its ability to step up to the plate um, in partnership. Yeah, I, I just might comment before I yield to, to uh, Congresswoman Brooks. Because of my, you know, I represented Kalamazoo and Portage, Michigan. And so that's where Pfizer's facility, but I'm sure Moderna and J&J had the same thing. I mean, I literally walked through their facility. It was a quarter of a mile long uh, underground as they converted that to prepare for, for COVID. Uh, and to get the refrigeration, uh, they think they bought all the dry ice in the Midwest. I mean, 
But they, they had so many, they brought in a wonderful uh, guy from Pennsylvania, Jim, uh, to help manage uh, the program. But it was it was a good five or six month effort uh, to be able to roll those trucks out on December 13th uh, of 2020 to actually working with FedEx, working with all the different suppliers, working with the uh, uh, pharma, uh, with the uh, drug stores to, for distribution. I mean, it was really something else that was Herculean uh, to get to get done uh, as fast as as they could. Uh, Congressman, do oh. you want to add something? Uh, no, just on, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, what it would take, I just wanted to add to what my fellow panelists said, which is like, ultimately, you know, industry is ready to step up, but um, having adequate, sustainable, predictable funding for this enterprise, I think would really go a long yeah. way. Yeah. I just want to make just two really, really, three really quick comments, super quick. One is, I think the challenge is there's very little market already for anti-infective agents for the private sector, independent of medical, you know, bio-threat agents, number one. Number two, there's limited or no commercial market for medical countermeasures unless government invests in it. And I think, and then, so this all gets to, to Peggy's question, which is the most challenging one. And I don't know if the commission has considered this, but it would probably require a much longer discussion about all the different ways that NIH and, and BARDA and, and all the other agencies can collaborate together on rapid screening for new compounds, developing broader spectrum agents, and then making sure all of those components of the supply chain are available. Um, but I think that would be a really wonderful session for the, the commission to consider separately, maybe. Congresswoman Brooks. Uh, thank you all so very much for being there. I wish I could have been there today with you. Um, I continue to be surprised about the lack of an advisory committee for FEMC that was mentioned. And it seems like we have talked about that for years. Um, can you share uh, what your experiences have been with FEMC and then also, because our commission likes to make pretty specific recommendations, what are some of the ways that we should be improving um, the process of contracting with the with the federal government? Um, and then finally, if the strategic national stockpiles get extended to states and states start creating their own strategic national stockpiles because, stockpile was woefully inadequate this time. Um, do you all think that's a good idea or not? So the stockpiles, expanding to the states, FEMC's advisory committee, and how would you improve contracting? And I'll let any of you take any of those questions. And thank you so much. So you're saying communication is as important as knowing what the long-term funding is. As long as the communication was clearer, that might satisfy the companies. Of course, it depends, you know, again, if there is uh, an adequate level of funding to sustain um, um, the work and the, um, the manufacturing and the procurement. I just say just on those three topics. Um, so for the to, to echo Dr. Afros's his comments, I think you know for us as a company, this the timing of when these options are exercised is not predictable enough 
for a a publicly traded company or any essentially any company in the private sector because of this need to continue to answer to your investors and to and to deal with the markets um there has to be a little bit more predictability for when the when a decision will be made on those options because there have been times for example when our companies had to take a risk and manufacture on the hope that the government would actually exercise the option when we need a little bit more certainty. So that's primarily our biggest contracting issue, number one. Uh, for the role of the states, I can sort of take off my corporate hat and put on the hat I had when I was in, in New York City once as the deputy commissioner and also as the lead for the COVID-19 response is to say that, you know, I worry as a public as a public health person about the politics of our country you know, and the, the functionality of our federal government in all situations. So I, you know, I was in my New York role. I was encouraging our, our mayor and our governor to to think about what it, you might want to stockpile. Um, and so that's one is because the, the threat, the risk of what might happen from the federal government response. But the other is, you know, our states vary, right? And there may be issues that are more relevant to certain states and others that may represent some type of local interest if, if there's the investment case. Um, and related to FEMC, unfortunately, I'm new in my role, so I haven't I've had that uh, role, but maybe Paul has a cancer. Yeah, the, my understanding is the current PAPA reauthorization, which is being considered, there's a recommendation to add an advisory committee to the FEMC. So our interaction with the FEMC is fairly limited. Um, so if you drop down a layer and then say, well, well, what's the level of industry engagement with the ASPR in particular, that is e equally limited or almost non-existent or very transactional, as I mentioned before. I think communication is great, but I'll give you an example, right? If the ASPR or the SNS is trying to figure out how to achieve its objectives with a finite budget, it would be much easier for them to come to us ahead of time and saying, I want to make sure that I maintain my smallpox capability, but I have the other priorities. How can we work together to make sure that we maintain a sustainable capability over a different course of time that what might be different than your current contract? That is not happening. What's happening is a bit more of after the fact a decision has been made with no communication and it puts industry at a really difficult position in terms of how to, I think, balance its responsibility to the capability, um, but also to be able to manage its operations at the same time. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. Uh, Senator Daschle. Thank you, uh, Fred. Uh, I, I just want to just uh, start by just thanking each of you, uh, not only for being here, but but for your work in the medical countermeasure development space, I'm so sorry I can't be there in person. As Susan has already noted, I've, I've, uh, I'm traveling today. But you and your organization should be commended for the service that you're providing towards our country's national security. And your testimony today, I think, is just illustrative of just uh, what a contribution that is. Drug development is so risky and expensive, and the, the path of least resistance is to invest in a therapeutic area like oncology. And yet here you are, you've chosen to invest a significant effort and resources in a space with, with no commercial market where your most significant customer is the United States government. And working with the government has always had its challenges, but never more so than today when merely keeping uh, the government operational is, is a major victory. I know you, you spoke to some of these challenges already, but would you consider Project BioShield a success? And if so, what changes would you suggest to ensure that this track record continues? And let me just ask any one of the of our guests uh, presenters to, to answer the question. I would consider Project BioShield Bio a, a huge success. I think uh, prioritizing the development of medical countermeasures um, 
has been excellent, and the relationship and how Barda, if I use Barda as the example, how they approach how they how they approach that um, and operate with industry is is very collaborative, and I think driven towards a common goal. I think the area for improvement um, is as that research and development shifts into commercialization, uh, for lack of a better word, or procurement. That handoff needs to be streamlined and and more of a uh, a, a continuous. A view of how we're going to manage what's been developed on the other side. And I think right now it's a little bit of a uh, a drop baton sometimes if you want to use a relay race, not intentionally, uh, but just the way the the particular agencies happen to be set up and an opportunity for maybe more connectivity there. Thank you for that. If, 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 anybody else? If, if anybody else want yeah, I mean, I would say from BN's perspective, we, we um, definitely consider it a success. Um, one of the key things when uh, with the beginning of Project BioShield, you know, having that uh, 10-year lump sum, I think, was a big part of the success, you know, that ended after 2013. And, you know, if... <laughs> that were, uh, if it continued to operate that way, I think that that would certainly create more pr predictability uh, for companies and partners. And and just as a follow-up, uh, what, what challenges are presented by the fact that the SNS is currently funded at half the level reflected in the multi-year budget? Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think you know, obviously, we all have a commercial interest in, in supporting this. But I would say, from a from a public health perspective, I mean, I think we face this this incredible challenge of the predictability of when um, funding will come through for exercising the various options needed to maintain the stockpile. So um, I think that you know, having an ability to respond to all different threat scenarios and potential threat you know, pathogens, um, you know, that's one challenge with it, with it being underfunded. But I think the second one is for us is this, this predictability of when, of when funding actually gets exercised uh, for us to be able to manufacture um, in time and get delivery to where it needs to be. Well, great question. Yeah. I, I would, I think the challenge is, is it's, it's causing the SNS to make if you want to call it annual decisions or very transactional decisions about how much to procure of what medical countermeasure. And that's not strategic at all. Um, and I think that's what we need the SNS to do. I think it also diminishes the continuity and the sustainability of the capabilities. And I think that's, I think that that's, if it has not, it's putting some capabilities at risk. Um, but I think that that's what that leads to. Um, so to the earlier point of increasing funding or getting the funding of the SNS to a point where we're not putting any capabilities at risk. It's really important. Well, let me just end where I started. I just I just want to thank you for the the real demonstration of how effective public-private partnerships can be. I I'm a strong advocate and I, I, I think everybody on the on the commission understands and is supportive of multi-year funding, but it's never more important to, and it couldn't be more helpful uh, in this multi-year uh, uh, objective or aspiration we have today than in building a, an even stronger public-private partnership. So we thank you for your, your presentations today and for all the good work you're doing. Fred, with that, I'll turn it back to you. Well, thank you, Congressman Greenwood. <clears throat> thank you, Fred. Um, 
th this issue of um, there only being the U.S. government as the market for some of these medical countermeasures has been with us for a very long time, and it seems to be <clears throat> a problem that it should be handled. It doesn't seem to have been successfully handled ha handled to date. Um, the whole every uh, nation in the world experienced the shock of of COVID, and so they you know, they have this recent reminder of how things you know a pandemic like that can spread. So um, if you if you look at at, at um, smallpox in particular, why is there not an international market for um, that, that kind of medical countermeasure that would take up some of the slack from the inability of the U.S. government to guarantee the uh, recurring um, procurement of the vaccine? There actually is a international market, at least for ACAM 2000. So I, I would say um, at a much lower scale than what you see in the United States. Um, I think the international countries, if I just block, put them all into, into one bucket, um, they tend to view it in terms of episodic procurements um, versus, I would say, a strategic view to development and stockpiling of products. And, and now that's changing. I think, you know, we have certainly from our standpoint, COVID has, has changed their view on how to prepare for threats. Um, with MPOX happening, um, that certainly changed their view in terms of understanding um, how to be prepared for not only MPOX while it was happening, but also smallpox. But um, I think one of the opportunities is for the federal government is how can how can the federal government better connect with the international markets? Because that can create additional, I would say, demand or offset challenges that maybe the U.S. has from funding that could be offset by procurements of, 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 let's say, our international partners for any of the medical countermeasures that we support. And that was, so, that was sort of where I was going to go next, which is um, you can tell me whether your companies feel that they have the capacity to lobby other markets, other national markets, um, for to, to expand their the capacity and their stockpiles, um, or whether, if not, uh, it's, always, it's always going to be a challenge. I understand that. Um, but to what extent the federal government, U.S. government, could be of assistance in that, which would be in our interest as a nation, obviously, um, to encourage our partners and allies and friends around the world to to uh, step it up, um, and and s similarly is like the World Health Organization. Are there international organizations that could um, fill in where the uh, other countries are are only doing small ball, if you will? Uh, episodic preparation. No, this is a uh, a great issue. I think it would expire our time to talk about all the different ways in which you know incentives at the global level and uh, in governments and 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 uh, companies aren't aligned in in the right way. Let me just highlight a few kind of important points. Number one is, I think absolutely the U.S. government needs to. Uh, play a role through its diplomatic work in multilateral organizations, multilateral defense pacts, and also one-to-one -one diplomacy, uh, particularly for our European allies, and to to play a bigger role in supporting the development of medical countermeasures. Their populations benefit. They're in the risk line, and uh, they have companies that can also benefit from that funding. So it's an economic development, um, and so I think it's very analogous to our problem that we face with regular military defense spending, right? Where we have to sort of strong arm and say that look, we shouldn't be the the the, the backup for global defense against physical warfare. We should neither be the backup for all biological warfare. The challenge at the global level, since I spent most of my career in public health working in developing countries on, on disease, emerging diseases, is, is the threat assessment, right? On a day-to-day -day basis, you're facing a lot of regular 
infectious disease threats. So ranking this in the to- in the risk tolerance level is much lower. You know, it took a long time for WHO and not just WHO itself, but other multilateral pro- uh, to set up a procurement mechanism for HIV medications and tuberculosis and, and other things. So I do think that over time, the U.S. investment in these broader disease platforms will ultimately then allow that to get folded into multilateral procurement. The idea being that even though it benefits a biodefense, low probability, high risk event, it may also treat a ongoing disease threat in another area. And so that way you can pull in the defense side and the health side to have a common interest. Thank you. Rachel Levinson. Thank you very much. All of you have, uh, I think, done a fantastic job of addressing the issues that are associated with, at least in the, in the case of the stockpile and um, smallpox. We were very fortunate to have a drug in the, even at limited capacity within the SNS that was effective with MPOX. So you could look at MPOX as a stress test in a way, but with certain very, uh, very significant differences from our experience with COVID. As one example, there was a highly motivated patient population for MPOX for, um, for Geneos, and uh, we had um, an effective vaccine in the stockpile. Um, so it was more or less the best case scenario. Smallpox, if I, I think that uh, Senator Daschle said originally that he didn't think we could repeat the eradication today, but maybe because of the knowledge and the experience that we have, even though you've identified certain key um, issues with with supply and uh, manufacture that I think we can at least see what those problems would be. COVID, we, we had to develop a new product. And so we have new technology that was not around when we had, uh, when we were concerned about smallpox. Um, but I would like to know your, your sense of this. So this is when we're t- starting from squares, you know, zero um, to develop a new product. And you really did a great job of explaining what the concerns are with your investors and um, the uh, government as the purchaser uh, of how those arrangements, financial arrangements, supported what you did, even when we had a drug that, and countermeasure for, with TPOX. Um, so when we're starting with something that's brand new, even though we have this technology in hand, mRNA or other kinds of um, um, platforms, what would you see as the federal government, because we make risk, recommendations to the executive branch and the federal government. What would you see as the key stumbling blocks if you had an unknown? Uh, and how, where do you think the development should be? And what would the, and no, I'm kind of surprised today that no one has mentioned SDA, you know, like one time. Uh, oh, pardon me. Okay. So you probably did. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. So so I think that there's a great willingness now to be more flexible in, in some areas, but we don't necessarily have an accepting population around the world, even within cities and the, in this country. So what would you see as the role of this commission in making recommendations to address the coming um, threats, the currently unknown threats? Um, no, excellent questions. And I think, you know, some of them overlap with um, uh, Dr. Hamburg's questions about how we could more rapidly identify an unknown, you know, rapidly identify drugs that could be used in, in the event of, an, of, a, of an, a new pandemic, one that we hadn't predicted. Um, and I think those are just, yeah, I think the, the steps along that are probably too much to discuss here. So I think let me highlight a few things. Number one is, I do think that 
you know, we face the eternal challenge we do across every government agency, which is how you improve coordination, right? Like, for example, right now we're involved in a in a uh, NIH-sponsored clinical trial in the Democratic Republic of Congo to document the efficacy of, of TPOX for the treatment of MPOX. Um, but there's this ongoing negotiation and discussion with FDA over whether or not it counts as a pivotal trial. Like, is that sufficient to determine? And I think these are, you know, if you look at, I, I think the optimum partnership that I've seen that came out of COVID was what's called RADx, you know, the diagnostics platform where NIH working with CDC, sorry, working with CDC and working with, with uh, particularly with FDA and uh, product developers basically comes up with a target product profile and they work together to design the trial so that we know that FDA, if it proves successful, will approve it. So I think those types of strengthened and expanded coordinations for antiviral agents, for vaccine products, I think would, would go a, a long way towards uh, strengthening our, our biodefense against emerging threats. I would add, I think the, certainly speaking from industry, I think a understanding of the ability to go into an unknown, let's say, R&D program with some level of shared risk um, is also, you know, a shared funding piece w would be critically important, um, especially when you don't know what the outcome or the success of that developmental program is actually going to be. Um, and then certainly an understanding if, if that program is successful, you know, there's a, you know, a procurement stream on the back end. But, but I, I do believe, I think these three companies demonstrate industries will, willing to step up to the plate and engage. And I think as long as there's that ability to partner and, and share the risk or mitigate some of the risk for the industry partner on the front end certainly um, would go a long way. Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree entirely with those points. Um, you know, are there ways to mitigate the risk, you know, um, before going into an area where of unknown unknown whether there'll be a commercial market are are there things that the government can do to mitigate the risk both up front and then ultimately uh, through procurement well thank you thanks to, for an engaging panel we appreciate that and with uh without further ado we'll move to our third panel thank you thank you so much okay we're gonna we're gonna get started We've got planes and trains to catch, so we want to be on time. We are we are really pleased to to have this last panel with us. Uh, Julie Gerberdin, uh, doctor, uh, chief executive officer, foundation for the NIH, former director of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Honorable Craig Vanderwagen who is the Managing Director, East-West Protection, LLC, former Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, uh, Department of HHS, and Jeff Redcheck, uh, Director of the Washington Office for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, as we have seen with the other three, other two panels, if you'd limit your remarks, hopefully to about five minutes, then we'll engage in questions. And uh, Dr. Gilberding, we'll start with you. Thank you again for being here being patient with us. Thank you. And it's really an honor to be here, but also as an American, it's a relief that there still is a wise crowd of people focusing on this issue and that you haven't put it in. And we're bipartisan. Bipartisan. It's part of our name. <laughs> That's an even rarer bird. Um, I'm just going to make three points. Um, first point is that uh, 
biodefense is a critical component of our national security, and we need to think about it from that framework more than I think we typically do. The second point really relates to the CDC and our public health system, which clearly needs modernization. A lot of us have been working on recommendations on that for some time, but I think um, this is another framework for bringing those up. And then my third point will focus just on the need to advance our doctrine of what um, biodefense really looks like. Countermeasures are clearly important. I think there are some opportunities to advance our countermeasure doctrine, but we need to be thinking upstream as well to preemption, prevention, and what we need to do to take some of these threats off the table. So let me just highlight uh, uh, these points um, briefly and come back to anything that interests you in the Q&A. Um, you know, we, we have for a long time um, operated under different doctrines of biodefense, but I think if coronavirus didn't teach us anything, it taught us that we have to have a whole of society plan and strategy for how we respond to these biological threats. And while Craig and I can go back and wax eloquently about what happened between HHS and VARDA and ASPR and CDC and all of the other agencies that were involved in some of the earlier infectious disease threats, um, the fact that there now is an Office of Pandemic Preparedness Response Policy in the White House makes sense to me, and I hope that we can endorse and strengthen that office not because it should in any way be political, but because you need the power of the executive branch to really bring the whole of society, the whole of government, um, and that cascades throughout the system. So strengthening that. And in, at the same time, as I said, thinking a little bit differently about our doctrine, some of the conversations that I've even heard today about contracting and mechanisms for engaging and incentivizing the private sector, I think we should look at how the Department of Defense manages these same challenges. They do manage to incentivize innovation. They do manage to engage some pretty powerful private sector partners in the prospects of developing weapons and modernizing them and maintaining them, et cetera. So something about the contracting process um, and the 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 mechanisms for investing and sustaining that over time may make sense. And that does require some changes in how some of this is funded. Single-year funding is not uh, the way the Defense Department approaches these long-term contracts. My second point uh, about modernizing the CDC is a, a, a big, long topic. Um, and there are some specifics in terms of authorities that you've probably already touched on before. But I think um, the fact that we operate as a federation of states and not as a national public health system is problematic. And I don't mean to say that we want to federalize our public health system. Peggy and I have had this conversation many times, but I do think that we need, at least in the context of a public health emergency, to be able to establish national requirements for data sharing, data reporting, et cetera, et cetera, and that the systems for supporting that operate seamlessly throughout the health ecosystem so that we don't have people faxing information back and forth like we just experienced um, in the COVID pandemic. Having said that, I think we do have to realize that Washington is not the front line of public health and that our system writ large is woefully inadequate so a major modernization effort truly is required. And I really, even though I was the head of that agency at CDC, I cannot 
think of how to do this in the partisan environment that we are experiencing right now, particularly the red-blue divide. Um, it may be that we need to think about things like we implemented when we were considering base closures, a separate process that really takes a, a nonpartisan look at what's going on and makes some uh, implementable recommendations about how to move forward. We need to advance the sciences of public health for sure so that the scientists have the tools and the capabilities that they need, the data science tools, the laboratory tools, et cetera, but also the communication capabilities, the, uh, the training and the ability to really provide objective, credible, timely, and accurate information, not just in a crisis, but especially in a crisis. My last point about the doctrine of, of our overall biodefense, um, I would really like to have the opportunity to dig into the concepts of upstream prediction of things like spillover, how we can bring the intelligence community and know-how more into the biodefense um, domain, what we might be able to do about preemption before these things begin to take off. That feeds into the doctrine that Craig and I worked under, which was, you know, detect the problem at the source, contain it at the source if possible, and then mitigate the harm. And the countermeasures are obviously a really important component of that containment and mitigation. Um, but I would argue, when you asked the question, Senator, about the list, I could give you a list, but then I would be able to think of new things to add to the list or variations on that list or viruses that evolve from that list. So I don't think we can define the universe of the threats that someone could imagine or that Mother Nature could invent. I think we need to think beyond vaccines, as we've learned. They have an important role, but they take time. They're not a panacea, and you keep having to change them if you're dealing with something like a single-stranded RNA virus. Um, and I would argue that we're under-investing in monoclonal antibodies, which can be more rapidly customized. And I particularly think that we need a major effort in antivirals because we can go after families of viruses that may be more robust to the specific individual virus that emerges, and we need to have antivirals. And the advantage of antivirals is they're small, small molecules, basically, and they can be manufactured more readily in many parts of the world that could never um, initiate a vaccine production localization effort. So I, I would just really encourage um, the, the commission to maybe take a closer look at antivirals. Um, with respect to smallpox, and I'm sorry I missed this morning, so I'm not sure what the focus on smallpox is, but I just, because I'm an infectious disease doctor, I want to be sure people understand that smallpox is not the most contagious threat we will face. It's actually not very contagious. Um, it has a long incubation period, and you can intervene post-exposure as well as treat it. So we do need to have vaccine for smallpox, no doubt about it, and the more the, more the merrier, so to speak, but that there are many other threats that are far more dangerous, infectious, and worrisome to me. Smallpox has, of course, the terror element. So from the standpoint of frightening the public, it would probably be top of the list. But in terms of actual harm to humans, um, we have a lot of other things that I would you know, want to make sure we looked at first. So I'll just stop there. And again, thank you so much um, for 
putting us together. And and Congresswoman Brooks, thank you. Nice to see you on a different commission. <laughs> thank you. Good to see you, Julie. Mr. Vanderwagen. Yeah. Thank you. Well, as the tribes used to tell me, just tell the story. Don't show us your numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Julie and I know this because we live with the tribes together in many ways. Uh, my reflections really are on the issue. I, I think Julie has really outlined a forward-thinking way to, that we should be approaching this. And the current uh, ASPR, I think, is in that bag. She is thinking forward, and I think the movement that she's initiated and the authorities that she's looking for uh, would facilitate a number of the things that we've talked about today with supply chain and thinking forward to supply chain, not just thinking about let's put something in a stockpile somewhere. I think my concern, of course, is what's our operational effectiveness and are we prepared to respond uh, when those events occur? Mitigation is the most important thing, but mitigation sets up your preparedness and then your ability to respond. We teach our students at Harvard that mitigation is the focus, but response is important. And I think, you know, when ASPA was first stood up, it was stood up under the aegis and concern that we'd failed in Katrina and that we had real challenges from 9-11. And Senators Burr and Kennedy, I think, spearheaded the effort to try and develop what they thought was a response that would facilitate a stronger HHS unified approach to responding to issues. Uh, and I think that that's still a promise that needs to be fulfilled. I think the establishment of a White House office is important. We, in the, in that time period, we had Fran Townsend running the Homeland Security Council, and she was a very effective administrator, and she saw the need for interagency work and coherency, and she would beat our heads together when it was needed uh, to get it done. So I'm a firm believer that that office, in terms of bringing the interagency together to strengthen a unified response and going then to the whole of society response, is a critical and important feature that we've had. I think ASPR needs a unified budget. There's a variety of pieces. There's BioShield, there's this, there's that. There's the Public Health Emergency Fund, but I think a coherent budget is an important feature for that office if they're going to execute against the mission which they have, which now, secondary to COVID, involves dealing with the supply chain issues. Uh, how do we incorporate DOD contracting practices and procedures into the way we think forward about warm basing, pre-pricing, and giving the private sector a clear message about how important they are and providing the financial support and incentives to stabilize and increase their resiliency. That is an important feature for the response package as well, as we saw. I would like to argue also that we need to be more effective in our dialogue with state and local entities. Uh, we understood ASPR as much as CDC understands its mission as being engaged with the communities and augmenting and filling gaps that they can't do because they don't have the assets. And we need to make sure that there are facilitated dialogues around that that may need some call out in legislation, in PAPRA, for instance, as that reauthorization proceeds, that gives an active role for those community and local entities. The community is the center of this. 
What we learned in COVID was we had things in stockpiles. Somebody decided we were going to build ventilators, but nobody talked to the people who were going to actually use those tools to assure that the tool met the task and the need as it was perceived at the ground level. So I think there's room to build that kind of authority or direction, if you will, into the process to assure that the federal government is engaged with the local entities and that they are driving the train ultimately. Um, some of you may know I negotiated most of the self-governance compacts early on with Indian Health and turning that authority and those assets over to the communities created a very different and more dynamic health system in those communities driven by their priorities. So I'm a firm believer that that's where we need to have some focus in terms of the federal government augments and fulfills, but it's the locals that live with that reality. So, and thank you, Secretary Fischella, for getting me into disaster response. She sent me off to help with the coast of our refugees when she and Secretary... Is that Albright, a real thank you or that... No, that's a real thank you. <laughs> I mean, 25 years in Indian Health Service was the best part of my life. I grew up on the res in New Mexico. My family's been in that Pueblo for six generations. So it was the best experience I could have asked for, the merger of public health and clinical care in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else, really. But when I got into the disaster biz and she got me there, uh, it was really an eye-opening and changing experience that all the mentoring that I had from the tribal leaders throughout that 25 years came into play with how do I help the Kosovars deal with their reality? How do I help the Iraqis deal with their reality? Etc. Indonesia, the tsunami, how do the people in New Orleans respond to Katrina? So it was a good deal. So summarizing, I think there are some authorities that ASPR could utilize more effectively. There is a need for a unified budget for their operations so they can plan forward. And, and I think that would benefit significantly. The last piece is hopefully the Office of Pandemic Policy can act in a way that brings about unity of command when we deal with these challenges. I think there's the need for a Goldwater-Nichols-type act in dealing with this, because we can't have an Air Force, Army, Navy doing their separate thing. You need to have that combatant commander or incident commander, as we believe the civilian world operates. You have to have that clearly identified and authorized. Thank you. Mr. Rachek. Good afternoon, and, and uh, I, I too would like to thank the commission for supporting this really important discussion and um, and having me here today. So you've likely heard Dr. Cohen say this, um, but CDC is a national security asset that prevents, detects, and responds to the threats at home and abroad to protect the country's health, safety, and security. And as you know well, we're seeing more of these infectious disease threats than ever before, whether it's COVID, other highly concerning viruses such as polio, malaria, mpox, Ebola, Marburg, the list goes on, uh, and it will continue to go on. Uh, so we need a CDC that is trusted, and we need a CDC that has the tools to quickly and effectively respond to the next public health threat to support our biodefense. Whether it's our global health center supporting global disease detections and operations center, our laboratory response network that oversees and collaborates with a network of laboratories genomic sequencing, or CDC's FEP program uh, to enhance state and local preparedness, or the work we're doing on data modernization uh, to support better situational awareness. CDC's capabilities are foundational 
to the biosafety now and in the future. But we do this in the context of the past three years, when public trust has waned, partisanship around public health has only increased. And I'm here today to talk about what we're asking for from Congress, what we think CDC would really benefit from as we took a look back at those lessons learned. But before I do that, I do want to highlight that CDC is also taking those lessons learned from COVID uh, and through our Moving Forward initiative, doing the hard work we can internally. We're tackling a number of challenges. I'd like to highlight a few of those today. First is transparency. People need better access to information uh, that we have, and we're making important changes to support that access. For the first time, you can go to our website and you can see what's happening amongst COVID, RFC, flu, all in one place. So you can easily access what you need when you need it. We just launched a new wastewater surveillance page that shows how we're monitoring and detecting disease through 1,500 sampling sites, capturing data representing 140 million Americans in 50 states. And importantly, Dr. Cohen is leading through being on the road, meeting people where they are, talking to them in their communities, and talking about the, uh, the importance of vaccines and treatments to protect those uh, themselves and their loved ones. We're getting that information out faster and more clearly than we have before, and we will continue to make sure that is a priority. We're also uh, enhancing our operational excellence. So for example, CDC, as many of you know, launched the Temporary Bridge Access Program, providing vaccines to un and underinsured. 81% of un and underinsured have access to a vaccine within five miles of their home, thanks to this program, but it is only temporary. Um, so we're not just recommending vaccines, but we're working operationally to make sure people have access that they need. But as we work through improving those communication processes, that transparency, the operational processes, we also do need help from Congress. Uh, as Congress works to reauthorize PAPA and other legislation, we have an opportunity to set the funding and the author authorities a future CDC will use to better identify and respond to emerging threats. Specifically, CDC needs funding and authorities to fully leverage our data modernization initiative. As Dr. Cohen has said, data is the lifeblood of a response. In order for us to receive meaningful information back to you, those in communities, uh, we need continued sustained investments, and we need to change our policy capabilities for con uh, from Congress so we can get the answers to communities faster. We need to bolster our workforce. This is both at CDC and in our state and local partners. For example, CDC is limited how quickly we can surge staff in an outbreak how much overtime we can pay to continue having our senior staff being able to be on a response, and whether we can quickly convert our fellows uh, to full-time employment so we can leverage our investments in our training and our development. Finally, many of you have heard us talk about our Vaccines for Adults program, uh, which the Bridge Access program is supposed to be a bridge to. Um, this would drastically change the way we provide access to the uninsured in our community, uh, but just as importantly, it would set up an infrastructure that would leverage and sustain investments made during COVID to make sure we can quickly provide vaccines to people who need them uh, during our next emerging threat. These authorities, coupled with consistent and streamlined funding for the agency, will go a long way to address many of the challenges CDC faced during the pandemic. It will also help us prepare for what comes next. Thank you. I look forward to the discussion. Well, thank you all. Uh, I just want to say that uh, under the leadership of uh, Governor Ridge and Senator Lieberman, this, this panel has always been bipartisan and uh, really wonderful staff that we're, we're blessed to have. But every member, uh, it's not our party affiliation why we're, we're actively involved. 
and the report that we will publish uh, and prepare to, to sell is going to be bipartisan when it's done uh, this spring. And then it will be up to us as Republicans and Democrats to go sell our former, co my former colleagues and many of our former colleagues uh, on, on the product so we can deliver uh, to be ready for the next one. So we really, uh, I think, uh, Julia, you said at the beginning we need uh, a commission and this is it. <laughs> this is, and uh, we're, we're going to do our very best uh, to really get our colleagues uh, on the ball and and get done, and uh, Jeff, I'm just if I don't mind if you don't mind if I use your first name, you can call me Fred as well. Uh, I just want to say that you know the reorganization plan that uh, your I guess the the predecessor uh, uh, Wilensky uh, did uh, was certainly a step in the right direction. I'd be interested to know what where the shortcomings have been, uh, Director Cohen. What is what what's happening there in terms of moving forward. And the last question, and I focused this a little bit on the hearing today, and maybe it goes back to my OMB uh, background, is, you know, it's often the budget that drives the policy, not the other way around, sad to say. And as I recall, uh, the, the labor age bill in the House has a fairly significant cut, I think, for the CDC. And if that happens, where, where do you... Uh, where do you shortchange or what, what do you not do um, as we look at this? You know, here we are in early December, months into the fiscal year. You all still don't know what the budget's going to be. It's going to be another six to eight weeks. Congress is talking about getting out of session next week, which I think is a big mistake. They haven't done their job. They had Halloween off. They had all of, uh, <laughs> you know, trick-or-treat time. Yeah, I know. that. <laughs> Uh, October off, uh, 10 days off at Thanksgiving. Uh, they're about ready to take another three or four weeks uh, off, and they've not, you know, they're not done. Uh, and the football playoffs are going to be over by the time they come back, if, in fact, they come back. It's spring trip. March madness. Uh, yeah. So where are we as it relates to that? Uh, it's really not fun, but it's tragically, it's the reality. Yeah, thank you for those questions. Um I'm sure my colleagues will have uh, plenty to say about this too, but I can start to say um, on the moving forward front, uh, Dr. Cohen, I think, has, has made it clear to the agency um, and, and to others around the community that that, that process is continuing on. So um, I, as she has said this to Congress uh, through many of our meetings, um, that, that, that the beginning of that process that Dr. Wilnitsky set forward, we were on the right track. We need to make sure we continue and preserve that momentum. So whether that's you know trying to make CDC's internal processes faster by getting our science something is what seems as simple as our internal review of our scientific studies out fifty percent faster. Whether that's our clean slate initiative, really taking a look at our website to say is this the information that people need and can they get to it fast? So part of that challenge is trying to reduce our content by up to sixty percent so that people make sure that the relevant information they need uh, is the information they have available to themselves. It's a really big effort that we're going to continue to work forward uh, over the next couple of months. Another point of that moving forward initiative that's ongoing is thinking about how we can make sure we're consistent in our guidance process across the agency so that, we're, uh, that when we release our guidance, 
uh, everyone knows has gone through a clear process um, that reflects uh, interactions and, and conversations with a robust set of folks. Um, so uh, the last thing I'd mention is our ready responder program, uh, which our Office of Readiness and Response has really pushed forward, which we didn't have before COVID, uh, which is to say, what is the cadre of uh, individuals and responders at CDC that are ready to go uh, no matter what uh, public health emergency comes our way? And so those, those are efforts that are ongoing. We need to continue working through those, as you can imagine. These things take time, but I think we've made important progress, and Dr. Cohen, I know, is committed to continuing that. But have, have you all put out a list of saying if these cuts come into place, here's yep. here's the bad things that are going to happen? Yeah, so and I'll just say um, you th we can think about CDC. The, the, the budget is complex, but um, what we've been trying to focus on is sort of our core capabilities. One of those which I mentioned, and I'll mention again, is data. So in that House bill, uh, the, the budget for our data modernization initiative was cut pretty significantly. Um, if we want to come out of this uh, pandemic with uh, a clear vision and expectation that CDC provides data for people, both across this country to our interagency partners, so we can support our situational awareness, both domestically and across the globe, we need to make sure we have those sustained investments. Our cutting them is not the answer. Um, I would say the same thing with our workforce or our global capabilities. Um, you know, we are in 60 different country offices across the globe. We are supporting our scientific diplomacy to ensure that when something happens, uh, we, from a scientific standpoint, can find out as soon or before anyone else. Right? When we support cuts to those, those programs, that means we lose our operational readiness and our situational awareness, which are major problems uh, if we want to look forward to uh, supporting a robust public health awareness system in the future. So I'll just, uh, I would highlight a couple of those. Greg or Julie, you want to comment at all? I think that I'm really glad I don't have to make those hard choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what my wife says when she says I'm. she's glad that I'm gone from Congress. <laughs> yeah, in, all, in all seriousness, this is, um, you know, this just can't happen. I, you know, it, I, I'm in denial because the criticality of starting with not enough to get the job done right and then taking it down further is just um, it's a danger to human health. And we're concentrating on preparedness here, but there are many other public health threats that we're dealing with in the United States that will get short shrift. It brings to mind, Congressman, right. a series of hearings that we had with uh, Senator Daschle in presence around Indian issues. In one month, we talked about MCH care. The next month, we talked about alcohol. And the next month, we talked about emergency rooms. And it got frustrating for me because it was like, okay, why aren't you doing more for MCH? Why aren't you doing more for alcohol? And when he came to ERs, they said, well, which MCH program or which alcohol program do you want me to cut to make that ER run properly? And that's exactly where the director of CDC is going to be confronting reality with the committees when they ask her to come and talk about this. That, you know, which, which arm do you want me to cut off here? Uh, and then are you going to be frustrated because we can't meet the mission that you then ask us to respond to? And, you know, he's absolutely right. The situational awareness tools that are inherent in the way the CDC functions 
not to mention the future orientation that Dr. Gerberding just talked about, are at risk. And how can we know when that threat is presenting itself and be prepared to deal with it? Can I add just one last thought, just because he um, made me think about this, uh, that, that future orientation, our Center for Forecasting and, uh, forecasting and Analytics, a really new state-of-the-art center, um, thinking about how we project how diseases will move, and that's eliminated, right? So, you know, it, it comes down to what what is our priority coming out of the pandemic? How do we want to better set up public health by eliminating those programs or drastically cutting them? doesn't seem like that's the right message we should be putting out there for our priorities. There is a boring dimension to this, but important, and that has to do with the structure of the CDC budget and the multiple vertical line items that are not integrated. So um, all of these cooperative agreements go out to all of the states and territories and, and tribes, and each of them has its own administration. Um, some of them are relevant to the priorities in the jurisdiction. Some of them aren't. But it's not an efficient way to support public health programs, particularly in an era where we're much more concerned about the totality of health equity and not so much about each individual line item therapeutic area. Thank you. Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, Fred. Thanks to all of you. So I want to uh, focus on uh, CDC. Uh, I think it's generally acknowledged that CDC didn't come out looking good uh, from uh, the pandemic, from COVID-19. Uh, part of that was obviously because it was operating in a context that was, as somebody mentioned, partisan, uh, political, and uh, shall we say, uh, di uh, a disorderly and unpredictable under former President Trump. That's a nonpartisan statement I just made. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, bipartisan, right. <laughs> so, um, uh, so that, that, that was part of the context in the environment. But um, I think a lot of people sort of looked at CDC and said, what, what is CDC? What does CDC really do? It's, it, and uh, if you look at it, fascinating to me, and this is something we're wondering about whether we can um, be constructive in our report next year. Um, the CDC has uh, been given a number of responsibilities by statute, uh, but it's never been uh, actually authorized in law with what I would call a, a clear sense of priorities. Maybe I'm wrong, and if you think I am, let me know. So um, the question is, and I think our commission is going to think about this, consider it seriously, uh, should uh, we recommend that CDC be authorized in law and see that, not just a, that sort of formal step, but see that as an opportunity for, you know, the people's representatives, president, uh, to uh, clarify what the responsibility of CDC is, and if, if nothing else, give it a sense of priorities. So that's my that's my simple question. Should we should we authorize CDC? And if if you think we should, uh, just briefly, of course, and I'll be glad to entertain further discussions afterward. Um, what what would we say in addition to authorizing it? I, w I will just start by saying that CDC is authorized under the Public Health Service Act so that there are defined authorities. 
I don't know when the last time was they've been looked at and modernized or considered in light of current realities or current uh, opportunities. So it'd be a great opportunity to really step back and think about that. Okay. So I would just say to that, I think that point's well taken. Right? The authority we have, what we do, is directed by Congress. What we do on our you know, is uh, through our appropriations, through our budget, is directed by Congress. Um, and we draw those those authorities, many of which are in the Public Health Service Act and authorized. What I might say is, um, you know, the conversation around uh, what can we do to support CDC to you know, have the tools available to them so that we can respond more effectively. You know, it comes down to there there are a number of those policy proposals that that we are asking for to be you know to be authorized. So you know, trying to focus on uh, a subset of tools that you know sort of take what we had from lessons learned uh, and and clarify those and uh, I think is a good starting point. Uh, you know, if we think about sort of this big picture of authorizing CDC holistically in this in this environment, I think that's a a really tough, challenging lift to sort of rethink everything. So maybe we can start on a smaller scale to say, tactically, what are things the bipartisan uh, in a bipartisan way we can come together on and realize, you know, if we provide some clarity, some authority um, uh, uh, on specific issues can really make a difference to CDC moving forward. So let me ask you this follow-up question, because it does seem to me that uh, CDC has been given or assumed a number of responsibilities in the general area of public health, which are quite diverse. Uh, I don't demean any of them. But if I ask you, Jeff, uh, I'm, I'm sure, as people have, what, what, why do we have a CDC? What would you say? Uh, you know, I'd say it's what I said up top, right? To be uh, an asset that prevents, detects, and responds to health threats, um, uh, both domestically and uh, internationally. Yeah. Those health threats come in a diverse set of forms, right? Those are both infectious disease threats. Uh, and non-infectious disease threats, whether that's opioids, whether that's our chronic diseases that are major drivers of many of our healthcare costs across this country. Right, having a CDC uh, that is able to, you know, sort of, I, I guess I would say, walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Enhance our abilities and our capabilities on those infectious disease threats, while understanding uh, that those non-infectious disease threats are just as important to the lives of Americans. Uh, and CDC can cross both of those. So when we have a uh, uh, an outbreak uh, like Zika that you know sort of touches our birth defects center uh, and our um, uh, uh, Easy ID center, that you can come together. You have world-renowned experts in both of those and think about how do we best respond to that threat, which is an infectious disease threat, but is affecting mothers and babies every day. Um, having that synergy, uh, having that capability to in interact with our state and local partners. Uh, across that sort of universe of threats is incredibly important for, for CDC moving forward. Uh, Craig, do you have anything you want to add to this? Well, I, I think, Senator, behind your question is this notion of how do we simplify, which goes to Julie's point about right. budget, Right. how do we simplify so that there's clearer understanding at the ground level about what it is CDC does for them and what they can expect yeah, yeah. and and what they would appreciate. 
because right now I think there's this mixed bag of, well, it's the nanny government, it's this, it's right. that, it's all that stuff. And I think behind your question is is a drive, and, and Peg worked with us, commission to think about that, but make it simpler, yeah. straightforward, so that people understand the importance of that in their life, that if we don't have a CDC, we don't see those threats coming. Well, that that's well phrased. I agree. I mean, Jeff, I, I hope that you'll take the message back to Director Cohn that there's interest in this question, and uh, we would benefit, I think she would benefit, and CDC would too, if uh, the commission could have a conversation with her about this, even if it's virtual, if it's, it doesn't have to be at a meeting uh, like this. So we're happy uh, to remember the old phrase, I'm here for the federal government to help. Uh, of course, that was one of the three big lies. But we're here from the bipartisan and commission on biodefense. Can keep and we, and, what? Keep your doctors. <laughs> okay, we want to help. Okay, thank Well, you. but in that vein, Senator, my dad was the lead veterinarian for the state of California back in the 70s. Yeah. And he had, a, you know, hog cholera. He had a variety of outbreaks to deal with. And the, when he got a call from Colorado, he would just sort of say, okay, thank you very much. We've got it. So I, I, I hear what you're saying yeah. about that. But on the other hand, he understood that the science that they generated that he could use in his day-to-day right. business right. was important. That's a good story to end this uh, exchange with. Thank you. Dr. Shalala. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree um, that um, uh, CDC should be taking on a lot of non-infectious diseases pieces. I think Congress has overloaded CDC with a bunch of programs that are health-related but have, have um, mixed up its focus in, in some ways. It's been brilliant at infectious diseases. Millions of people all over the world's lives have been changed because of CDC. And every once in a while, when they picked out a public health issue like tobacco, they've made a, that was one of the great public health successes because the CDC was focused. And I think more focus to the CDC so it's easier to explain uh, would make some, uh, would make some, um, some sense. Um, but I, I actually um, have a question. I, I once, um, I was writing a speech for the American Public Health Association and I handed it over to Phil Lee, the great expert on, on public health. And he wrote a little paragraph that talked about public health and the healthcare system like two trains that were running along together. Um, and he made the point that unless we integrated the two, we could not improve the health of Americans, that it had to be more integrated. What stunned me about the COVID exercise, as I look back on it, was not uh, that we had to rethink the state and local government piece, but we had to rethink the role of health systems because that's where the resources were. The hospitals, I it never occurred to me that hospitals would give vaccine, vaccine, vac- do vaccination in, in a large scale. And I was wondering whether you would comment on thinking through when we handle pandemics about the role of the private, it's not public-private healthcare systems, the delivery systems that have all the resources. Uh, and I'm not talking about federally qualified health centers because we certainly have used those effectively. I'm talking about big hospital systems and big healthcare 
insurance companies and their role in public health and in integrating uh, the two. It's music to my ears because obviously um, that is the way to really achieve a healthy and well cared for society. And I think we've all struggled with it. It goes way back to the Welsh Rose Report at the beginning of the last century when Hopkins School of Medicine and Hopkins School of House, uh, Public Health were across the street from each other and didn't have a lot of integration. <laughs> so it was, yeah. But um, I think the, um, the COVID pandemic illustrated the essential ecosystem that needs to be relevant in planning for health promotion as well as protection. And we saw the role of the hospitals, certainly. We also saw the role of the pharmacies. Much of the immunization program was delivered in the pharmaceutical or the pharmacy setting, another private sector player in all of this. And so that ecosystem unit of planning really needs to happen. Um, it's easier said than done because the incentives don't necessarily support it. And you know what happened when the money got withdrawn from supporting some of these programs and the service level declined, suddenly became hard to find vaccines again, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not really set up to incentivize many of the healthcare delivery systems who are functioning on the margins right now of survival um, to take on additional responsibilities for population health well-being. But we did, uh, during the Vaccines for Children's episode, we did, in fact, use the pediatricians uh, very effectively, as well as the hospitals, to get all the kids immunized. It, yeah, and the CDC led that effort. And the federal government pays for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, COVID showed us some positive relationships there as exactly. well. I mean, I'll give you two examples. One was in Boston in the spring of 2020. They were overrun in their ICUs. And they wanted an alternate care site stood up, and we stood it up in the Boston Convention Center. But we brought 30 hospitals into the game. They all had a stake in the outcome of that. And they were concerned about placement of these people back in their multifamily dwellings out in Chelsea and other parts of Boston that were historically vulnerable populations. And so the link between the city, the Department of Health, its public health arc, and those hospitals became very tight. In El Paso, we saw the hospital systems becoming the sponsors for the community-based access to molecular antibodies outside the hospital. Uh, so there are positive examples of how that worked more effectively in this environment because the hospitals began to realize that they have a public good responsibility, not just a profit responsibility. They needed to keep people out of their pets. Right, right. I had this argument with the provost at LSU after Katrina because are you going to build back that hospital or are you going to go to primary care and become the world's primary care specialist in the lower ninth ward? What are you going to do? Tertiary hospital, primary care. They went back to tertiary hospital, of course. Because that's where the money was. I'll just riff a little bit on this as well, if you don't mind. And, I'll, I'll, you know, um, I, I would take a look at this, and, and this is something that CDC is thinking a lot about. CDC can't go it alone. CDC needs these partnerships with, uh, you know, between public, private, and, and other entities. Um, but take sort of that point around integration of our data, right? So uh, thinking about connecting our EHRs with our public health system. So if you're a provider, uh, you push a button, you send, you know, you put information in the EHR, uh, you don't have to take any other action, right? That information is sent to public health as well. Um, and 
and we are not fully integrated in that way uh, that I think if we could be would make a really uh, beneficial difference in how we are able to understand sort of what's happening in our communities um, across uh, the public health landscape. Of course, that information could absolutely need to be de-identified and clearly um, sort of uh, uh, pr provided to public health uh, to help support our awareness of what's happening in communities. Um, but I'll, I'll say one other thing, and this sort of goes back to the um, CDC on the non-infectious disease side, which is to say, you know, as we think about integrating our healthcare system, we also think about CDC's role in uh, understanding the research of what works uh, to, uh, in terms of interventions in public health and then implementing what works on the ground in the community. For example, our National Diabetes Prevention Program, which was uh, picked up and supported by Medicaid, right? And so you have a program uh, in an agency that's focused on trying to understand what are the interventions that will help prevent uh, obesity or diabetes. Uh, you have you you prove that program works. You work with CMS and our colleagues in the federal government to integrate that that uh, um, sort of uh, that priority into the healthcare system so we can advance that and have Medicaid support that uh, priority across the country. Uh, that is part of what CDC does. And if we don't do that, I don't know who else will. No, but really there are there are three other agencies in HHS that could do that. Respectfully disagree. <laughs> Senator Daschle. Well, thank you, Fred. But let me just... Uh, we're in the midst of, uh, of uh, I think, one of the, the most uh, uh, troubling uh, respiratory seasons uh, we've experienced now for some time. I've heard that the seasonal readiness uh, 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 around pandemic, uh, around flu is, in particular, is, is especially uh, dangerous this year. Flu uh, is such a unique threat. Every year, seasonal flu uh, kills anywhere from 4,900 to 52,000 Americans and costs over $11 billion in direct medical costs and, and, and employee absenteeism. But flu also has caused four pandemics since 1918. And I've read with interest several strategy documents from the administration over the past two years about the concept that annual flu has, uh, uh, has an important uh, exercise for, for, tem for pandemic readiness. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, uh, what are your thoughts about the public health infrastructure today that is in place and how we might address seasonal flu more effectively through the, uh, the infrastructure we have? I, uh, obviously, we're seeing a, 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 another a much more serious effort this year to, to address it, but I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that especially. Uh, I'll, I'll start here. Um, I think that influenza has been a great model for um, planning and exercising preparedness. And during my tenure at CDC, that was the highest priority for preparedness because we were worried about the avian influenza that had at that time a mortality rate of 50%. So we, exercise, we planned an exercise, crawl, walk, run to that over a period of about three years, I would say, Craig. Um, to really gear up. And that era was followed a, a year later in 2009 with the fourth of the pandemics that you just mentioned, Senator. 
and I, you know, um, have a bias. I wasn't the CDC director during that pandemic, but I think CDC performed pretty admirably because they were on top of their game from the standpoint of the preparedness. And yet, because the budget for that disappeared, the priorities changed, the interest and support for that particular domain of preparedness dwindled over time. We're kind of now where we are in a situation where we are more vulnerable, less prepared, and we have to really rev that up again. I also think this is an example of countermeasures where all of the money and effort and building out manufacturing sites, et cetera, stockpiling, Tamiflu, um, we've done so much to try to harden ourselves against a serious influenza pandemic, and yet, as you said, it still remains a critical killer of Americans. We don't have a sterilizing vaccine. We don't have a, a vaccine that gives universal protection, and we don't have antivirals to which the virus can't quickly become resistant. Much work needs to be done just in this domain of the known threat which again is why I think the upstream work to try to find different ways of thinking about countermeasures is probably a lesson we should learn from flu. Well, I, I just couldn't agree more and I really appreciate your good answer. I, I think our whole public health infrastructure is something that just doesn't get the attention it deserves. The other thing I'd add, and I, I don't know if you have any, any comment on this yourself, but I, the amount of misinformation on vaccines is very troubling. All vaccination rates right now are way below what they were pre-pandemic, and I, I really worry about that. It's having an enormous effect on, on the health and actual lives. We've lost, I think, over 180 children this year due to flu that uh, could have been avoided had we been able to, to be more successful at vaccination. So any thoughts you have on that would be welcome as well. Well, it is, it is about trust, and the bifurcation in trust has become red and blue in this particular topic over the course of the pandemic. So there is um, a correlation of political party, a correlation of urban-rural, and a correlation of even gender and race in the dimension of who's vaccinated and who isn't for flu, for coronavirus, and I'm sure the same will be true for RSV as well. So... Uh, that's a, a long answer uh, required to really get at the basis of the trust. But I think part of it is that we, um, we we did not get out of the starting gate of the coronavirus pandemic on the right foot in terms of trustworthy communication. Don't need to go into that. It's obvious to everyone. And once you lose trust, it takes forever to earn it back. And earning it back is not about providing better data or more charts or more left brain information. It's really about understanding how people value um, their independence, how people value their libertarian points of view, how people regard risk and who they do trust, which is usually the people who live in their household or next door to them or grandma and really that's the beliefs that are driving the decisions about vaccines. It's not really an information deficit. Very hard to penetrate a belief system from the outside in. But I think one strategy that has helped and it did improve some of the immunization rates during coronavirus was to really work with the people who are trusted at the community level. That's the physicians in the local community. Sometimes it's clergy, sometimes it's the barber, 
but it's the people that um, you know and regard as people like me. Those people have the biggest impact in trying to address this. But until we really mobilize those communities effectively and earn back the trust, I think we're going to be in for a really bad winter. It's not just ignoring or not paying attention to the public health system. There's active engagement just against it, and it emanates out of the local perceptions that Julie just talked about, but plays out through their state legislatures and through their municipal governments as well. So it's not just a matter of sort of not paying attention to it. We're actively taking it down at some large level on a segmental basis. It's not universal, but it's happening. Well, this is National Influenza uh, Week, actually, as you know, and I think it really deserves a lot more attention than it's getting. But I, I thank you both for your answers and, and uh, really appreciate your public service. Congresswoman Brooks. Thanks. And I'm going to build on Senator Daschle's question and uh, just want to thank you all so very much for being here. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Julie Gerberding and I served as co-chairs of the CSIS Alliance on America's Health Security. And she's been a, hu a huge, impactful voice for so many years after leaving the CDC, both in private sector back in the now back in the public sector with NIH, and we just are so fortunate to have her uh, voice um, in, in a lot of different forums. And same with Craig Vander. I mean, we've just heard from him in so many uh, in incredible ways with his experience. And Jeff, I'm really pleased that the CDC is going to is paying a lot more attention to the DC uh, crowd because um, I think the issues of trust is what you have to rebuild with uh, members of Congress and the Senate. Um, and I guess I'd like each of you to, because not just trust with members of Congress, but trust and disinformation issues at the local level. What Julie just talked about is, I think, found foundational and such a huge issue for the CDC. And I'd love to get each of your idea on what the CDC specifically should do to help rebuild that trust with the local communities, because that's will then make an impact with their member of Congress if they could be more of that voice and more of that advocate, because I definitely think CDC is going to need a lot more advocates at the local level that will really step up and help uh, their members of Congress understand the importance of CDC. So what would you all recommend that CDC do or that we recommend that CDC do or be given the authority to do to really strengthen the ties with the local um, lo local and state uh, officials? Thanks for that question. Um, it's a big question and it's a, it's a hard question because I think it is going to take a, a lot of time and effort and resources to um, really support and show uh, you know that CDC is and is is and should be trusted amongst communities. And so, what Julie mentioned, I think, is a is a big part of that, which is to meet people where they are. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I think CDC made a real concerted effort in in many areas, whether that's through COVID or MPOX or you know other outbreaks around the country. Um, but there is no question that one of our uh, key priorities is to think and strategize about how we can better 
get our message across to our communities, to our uh, you know, to our churches, to uh, folks who are on the ground having to make decisions about their health. That also means, you know, and, and uh, I would just say, you know, Dr. Cohen, I think, is living that. Dr. Cohen is um, out and in communities, visiting jurisdictions, and making it a priority to be seen, to talk to people, to hear people, and understand some of the concerns they have. Uh, we've seen that a lot through our fall, winter, respiratory season. Um, I would also say, um, you know, it's on us to, you know, part of what we talked about here and, and thinking about moving forward um, is to provide that clear information, that clear guidance, and not just clarity, but guidance that, that makes sense to people, that they can uh, implement um, and think about you know, how this is going to protect them and their lives and the data to support that, to say why, right? Um, and when we don't know why or we don't have full information, we say uh, this could change, right? Um, and really emphasizing that. We heard a lot of that uh, through COVID, really making it clear um, that the data can change. Um, and as we learn more, uh, we will update this information so that you know more when we know more. Um, but that is going to take time. Uh, and uh, I don't think any of us think it's going to be an easy hill to climb. The last thing I would just say, and this is related to Congress, um, which is what we think about in D.C. a lot, is we have to show up. We have to be there. We have to be present. We have to communicate, uh, maybe over-communicate, um, and to show that we're willing to engage uh, and answer questions um, and be present uh, and show them uh, what we know when we know it as well. Um, and, and we have to really think and focus on our DC community to um, help maybe tamp down some of the, the partisan uh, rhetoric that I think many of us have seen. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, Julie. Uh, well, I just wanted to add, Susan, that I went back and read the testimonies from White House briefings on coronavirus to try to understand maybe a little bit what some of the systemic issues were. And one of the things I noticed that even my most favorite White House communicators, which shall remain nameless, um, started always with data. It was really hard to find in the written testimony any expression of how hard this was for people. Uh, the empathy was missing from the communication the recognition that we don't have all the answers and this is really especially difficult because it's changing all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Like principle number one of risk communication is empathy. And it was not part of the conversation that people were able to listen to. I think the second thing you, you said, you have to go to the store. I remember when I started working at, uh, I was facing my appointment as the CDC director. I was scared to death. And I was talking to the business leaders in Atlanta who were friends of CDC and Bernie Marcus, who started Home Depot, said to me, look, kid, if you want to do a good job, you got to go to the store. And I'll never forget that. Uh, you know, you had to get out of Atlanta and get out there on the front line of what was going on and really engage and interact with the people. And I'm glad that Dr. Cohn is doing that. But one of the things that we've been recommending in some of our reports, and I'm looking at Peggy because she was part of this, um, was that CDC needs to not just send people out when there's a problem, but physically assign people to work in the state and local health departments, get the workforce redistributed out of Atlanta and into the front lines of where health is really delivered. Don't tell them what their health needs are. Find out from them what they think their health needs are. Thank you. Jim Greenwood. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, we've heard uh, tons about the failures of CDC and COVID. Um, and without casting any blame, my question is, uh, if and this is for the former directors, I, I won't direct it to you, Jeff, but um, what, what do you think were the, the one or two biggest failings of the CDC with regard to COVID? And um, do you think that the reforms that have occurred since then by uh, Walensky or Cohen um, have corrected those failures? And if not, what needs to be done so that those mistakes don't recur? I think we're all aware of the difficulty with testing and the the failure to really initially recognize how fast and how far this thing was going to spread and why testing was going to be a critical part of the front line. So all of the decisions that depended on knowing where it was now and how fast it was expanding were based more on dogma than they were on data because we didn't have the testing to agree with that. And that really set off a cascade of mistrust, even absent the politicalization. But the politicalization, the uh, confusing messages, uh, the lack of alignment in our government on what the nature and scale and scope of the problem was just confused everyone. So I don't hold CDC accountable for that part of it. Um, I would you know, like to think, had I been the director at the time and found myself in that situation, I would have drawn a line in the sand and said, I'm sorry, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And yes, I know you'll fire me, but that will give me an even bigger platform to speak my mind and to speak truth to power, so to speak. But I don't know, I wasn't there. And I think it was a really difficult time for everyone. I always say most of the people who are participating in crafting the CDC response to coronavirus are the same outstanding scientists who were there when I was there. So I don't think it's that the scientists have lost ground. Something else changed. And it's the something else that I hope the commission can, you know, can help with. I, I think Julie hit the right note there. The the other point that she made, which I, you know, this is what gets to my heart, and that is, where's the empathy and the sense of engagement with the community as opposed to the uh, left brain <laughs> uh, scientist propounding certain data, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, people maybe want data, but first they want to hear that you care. And you know, that's why I started out today saying, as the tribes used to tell me, don't show us your slides, just tell us the story. And, and so I think she hit all the right notes there. One other very quick point. Um, I mentioned the incredible investment we made in pandemic influenza preparedness. When we did all of this crawl, walk, run exercising, we brought a mock plane into Miami International Airport, quarantine passengers, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't concentrate on testing because in influenza, testing isn't very important. And that lesson there is that don't fight the last war. You know, we didn't open our imagination up to consider the broader view. And right now we're trying to regroup from coronavirus, but we have to be thinking expansively about, you know, this isn't the next scenario. This is the last scenario. Yeah, the point about empathy is spot on. I, I thought every one of those... When I watched every one of those uh, public system, uh, address systems that uh, was going on in the White House and so forth, uh, um, I thought they should always have started out with a, a story. Mrs. Jones, who lives in such and such town, in such and such a state, has passed away. She left behind this family, you know, and it, it would have made a huge difference. Thank you. 
Dr. Amber. Well, thank you. And I know that we're actually at the end of our time, but um, I mean, there's so many interesting issues here to pick up on. And obviously that these are all issues um, that I've been deeply involved in. I would have to say that I do think we have to recognize as we look about, look at how to strengthen CDC and restore trust in T CDC that its problems didn't start exclusively with COVID-19 and that it has, number one, long been underfunded, underappreciated. There is a culture that has developed within CDC in part because of it being Atlanta and partly because of it um, uh, not being fully integrated with other aspects of health where it's always, you know, been a little bit external and um, and as a partly as a result, it's developed you know, ways of doing things that have been slow to change in some instances. So I think we do have to recognize that COVID happened in the context of a of a, a, a agency that that was already in need of modernization and also the fragmented nature of of public health, um, which has strengths, but it also has many weaknesses in terms of. Um, CDC not having as much actual uh, authorities and, and direct control of the public health system in the country as many people think because of, of state and locals um, having considerable responsibility. So I think we need to be thinking about CDC in a broader context and not just what went wrong in COVID and let's fix that. And also recognizing that the world is changing enormously I personally believe, and you've all articulated in different ways, that CDC does have a unique and essential role, and it becomes even more important as we're thinking about how to reduce unnecessary health care costs and recognize that so much of what's important for health actually doesn't get addressed in the, the clinical and hospital and tertiary care setting, but is actually um, uh, looking at how to prevent or minimize uh, risks to health. So I think CDC, whether it's chronic disease or infectious disease, you know, embodies that perspective, which is more and more important. But I do think that we haven't figured out either within the U.S. government or uh, more broadly within the health ecosystem how to integrate critical public health understandings and approaches into this broader framework. And one of the things that Julie and I were both on this uh, commission for a national public health system and one of the things that we talked about, and there was you know mixed feelings about it, I think, was that even within the Department of Health and Human Services, there needed to be more integration, that CDC is a unique and essential public health agency, but it's not the only component of health and human services that is doing um, public health-related work, um, has important public health um, authorities and activities, and where there are opportunities for for greater synergies um, and um, and and sharing of responsibilities, and I think Donna and you, Jeff, were sort of getting at that a little bit about you know some of the things that that you were describing that CDC was doing. So I'm just curious, um, and this is really to you, Jeff, as you are doing your job, and you're obviously based in Washington, and so you're, I think, right, uh, uh, your your day to day living this um, uh, in some ways. Do you think that we need to, as a commission, 
um, address any issues related to the organization of public health within HHS. Do you think that there are adequate mechanisms for you to be coordinating with your counterparts? And do you think that there are opportunities to rethink some roles and responsibilities in order to better advance the health of the nation? Yeah, it's a big question. Um, and um, one that I think, you know, is, is probably ripe for uh, some continued discussion. Well, what I will say is um, we, and, and particularly Dr. Cohen, as she's come into the agency, has really put a focus on thinking through how we can uh, be better partners and better coordinate and, and better integrate what CDC does into sort of our larger health system. So, you know, of course, because of her background in CMS, she thinks about CMS a lot, right? Um, but I think the, the continued coordination and, and sort of thinking about how, you know, our separate agencies, which, which I do think uh, have clear, defined, distinct missions, um, but that do interrelate with one another, can continue to work together, whether that's CDC and SAMHSA uh, on substance use opioids, whether that's uh, CDC and ASPR uh, continuing to, to work and collaborate on a response um, or CDC, CMS, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, I think um, it is important to, at any point, sort of think through, uh, you know, where our missions are and how we can better execute those missions in collaboration with one another, particularly outside of, you know, COVID. Um, but to your point, right, these are these are challenges uh, when we have a big uh, HHS uh, that we always have to think about and deal with. So, um, you know, happy to continue to follow up on, on that discussion, but um, I, I don't think we would shy away from saying uh, collaboration and coordination with our counterparts is, is and will continue to be really important. Dr. Troy, thank you. This has been a very interesting discussion. I would like to give my colleague, Senator Lieberman and Secretary Shalala, bipartisan cover on this issue of uh, CDC roles and responsibilities and raise this issue of separating the so-called what you call the non-infectious diseases or the behavioral health aspect and the infectious diseases. Uh, you said, uh, Jeff, that uh, synergy, the synergy between them is, is important. But what if it's not synergistic? What if it's antagonistic to have those two roles? And there was a lot of talk about trust and political alienation. And I would argue that there would be three advantages to separating the two. Number one is the alienating behaviors of CDC, the, the ones that uh, antagonize many people in the American public, I think are ones on the behavioral, self, behavioral health side of the divide. The second thing is, Julie was talking about the red-blue divide. You might diminish the red-blue divide by taking the behavioral health aspects out of it and making CDC focused on what I think should be the core mission, which is communicable diseases. And then the third thing, by creating just this focus on the communicable diseases, I think you could increase the resources, which is another thing that Julie talked about. And I think that's extremely important to have that focus on the resources. And then maybe there'd be two separate discussions in Congress. One would be on the behavioral health aspects, and you could you know, make the budget justification for that. And then I think there'd be an easier budget justification on the other side for the communicable diseases, what I think people think is the core mission. And Jeff, I know you can't deviate from the party line, so I'd love to ask the free agents, uh, Julie and Craig, what they think on this. I'll get it. I did extend, Jeff, that's they said. So, um, I, obviously, this argument has been raised several times in different forums, and I'm pretty clear that I think people are 
integrated beings and not um, the sum of their infectious diseases and their other body parts. Um, so when I think about health protection, well-being, and health promotion, I think of it in a holistic and integrated way. Um, but that doesn't mean that every single program at the CDC belongs in the CDC. And I take your point about who else should have a stake in in uh, diabetes prevention, who else should have a stake in some of the other programmatic or the implementations, and are there better levers um, that would you know, still allow for the science and the integration to occur at the public health level, but the actual programmatic implementation or leverage to happen in agencies that are better suited that or are already doing that in other domains. So it's worth a look. Hard to do, but worth a look. I, I'm saying it's hard to do because I know how all those line items in the budget came to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, Chevy, thank you. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, the way I come at this is as much how do we get to this, and this goes to Phil Lee's story about the trains, okay? We've got trains over here, not here. And uh, how do we bring medical service delivery organizations more effectively into a responsibility and ownership of public health dimensions? And to me, that if we use HRQ, we use HRSA, we use CMS as vehicles to bring many of those public health messagings into the way they incentivize those facilities, then we may see a stronger ownership on the part of for-profit systems, if you will, that they have a public good. When I started in the hospitals in Blodgett Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the late 60s, there was a significant amount of pro bono care that focused on the vulnerable populations and outreach to those populations. The first delivery I did was on a kitchen table on a farm because we heard that woman was in labor and wasn't going to be able to get there. Uh, and it was a focus on that vulnerability. You know, we've lost that. Uh, you know, maybe you could say that's the fallout of CMS or, you know, the big insurance or whatever. But the bottom line is, for litigation. Yeah. Your argument for separation of those at some level doesn't minimize the public health need for those activities as much as it thinks about ways to integrate that into bringing that medical delivery system and the public health system to a similar place about our responsibility to the health and well-being of our people, not just cranking out cardiac caths. <laughs> We're not doing maternal care in hospitals anymore because there's no margin. We're focusing on those things where we get a margin. And so how do we influence that is a public health challenge that goes somewhat to your question, and that is how do we spread it out so it's not viewed as it's owned by CDC, let's say. Uh, but is beginning to be more viewed as owned by the broader HHS package of services, including CMS and so on. So, I mean, Indian Health Service, we, we didn't have a choice. We had to do both public health and medical service delivery, and we couldn't afford tertiary care. So we committed hard to primary prevention and then secondary prevention through good primary care. You know, how do we convince hospitals that there's merit in that is the question. 
I'll be quick because I know we're out of time. I would just say um, I don't want us to use the fact that CDC uh, sort of focuses on the broad impacts of public health to people, whether that's infectious, whether that's not infectious, whatever that looks like, as an excuse to suggest that the, that that it is going to be any easier to get funding, to get resources, to get off to the authorities, to CDC, to take care of uh, sort of some of the threats that that you know we would that folks might think CDC should take care of. Yeah, um, we should. I, I think um, CDC's role to research and implement that research into public health action is unique across our public health spectrum, um, and I would like to make sure we focus on what we can do to better equip CDC to be effective at its mission, to be more response ready. We can do that as well as continue to support the other pieces of public health, whether that's our chronic work, whether that's our injury work or opioid work, uh, all of those are interrelated. And if we try to separate them artificially, uh, I don't think we're gonna find that we're any more successful in addressing those threats. Um, thanks uh, to, uh, first let me thank uh, Fred. It was a pleasure to co-chair with you. And uh, we almost uh, got there exactly on time. Um, thanks to the uh, three of you and uh, to the uh, folks who preceded you on the two earlier panels. I said at the outset, on this commission, we uh, try to make it a practice to listen to the experts. And experts, it was a broader definition of people who really bring experience to the table in areas that we're considering. So you all really, the three um, the buckets of discussions in the three panels are really important to the commission as we uh, put together our, our report uh, for next year, and you all really informed our judgment, so we thank you for that. And uh, thanks to the people out there. Uh, I must say, I know it shouldn't matter, but there was a stand to us, there was a standing room only crowd here this morning. And uh, that was really great to see. And a special thank you to all of you, because you stayed after lunch. Yeah. Okay, travel home safely. We'll see you next time. Thank you.